my fellow historians. I'm Aziz. With me is Ashea, and this is Valar Reredis, where we look for the foreshadowing we missed, new depth in the world building, a better understanding of the plot lines, greater familiarity with the characters, and more fun than you can fit in all seven hills. We did a Where Are They Now on Team Stannis. It is up for patrons only. And that is about 15, what is it, about 18, 20 minutes of explaining where all the characters associated with Stannis are now. And meaning as of the Winds of Winter and the end of A Dance with Dragons, depending on where they've last had activity. So you can go to patreon.com, West History of Westeros, or slash History of Westeros, and check out the level that matches your particular uh, interest. We have a new level now, don't we, too? We do have a new level, thanks to uh, one of our lovely and uh, creative listeners who suggested we do the Red Wedding Band level. So if you're a member of the Red Wedding Band, you get to pick your instrument. In this case, we have uh, our first example. He plays a weirwood lute with Valyrian steel strings. So that's pretty badass. Today, we are doing, it's not the longest batch of chapters. We had so many huge chapters early on in the Clash of Kings, but huge doesn't necessarily mean that there's more to say about it than a shorter chapter. Usually it does, because George is efficient with his words. Um, So that when there's more to say from him, there's usually more for us to, to talk about. But in a very interesting and poignant example of how different this can be and how chapter lengths don't always translate to uh, a certain amount of analysis well brand four and Tyrion seven are our first two chapters today and they are exactly the same length and when i say exactly the same length i mean they are 24 minutes nine seconds both of them in uh, audiobook length but we have way more to say about brand four than we do about Tyrion seven and not that we don't have a lot to say Tyrion about Tyrion seven but overall this batch of six chapters only one of them is above the average length for a Clash of Kings chapter, and most of them are well below. But again, as you'll see, that doesn't mean they can't do quite a lot. This is a momentous set of chapters. A lot happens. And well, let's get to it. Today we've got Brand 4, the one where Jojen explains Green Dreams, a.k.a. Dances with Direwolves. Tyrion 7, Lancel Lannister, an erotic life. A.K.A. the one where Tyrion steals Cersei's plaything. Arya Seven, the gang gathers at Harrenhal, A.K.A. the one where Jockin is a killer genie. Catelyn Three, the one with Stannis and Renly's banter battle, A.K.A. F. Lightbringer versus a peach. Sansa Three is King Rob, the sauce boss of Oxcross, A.K.A. the one where Tyrion rescues Sansa. And Catelyn Four, the one where what a shadow. A.K.A. The Gang Switches Baratheons. Indeed. Let's get to it. Brand 4, the one where Jojen explains Green Dreams, A.K.A. Dances with Direwolves. We go from the overwhelming splendor of Karth at the end of Danny 2 last week, which, of course, if you're just reading in a normal order, it wasn't, there probably wasn't a week in between those chapters for you. So if you're reading them back to back, it's quite a change in tone and theme. You have dragons and comets and ointments that allow you to see the spirits of the air. And in this chapter, it's just... Well, it certainly gets supernatural, but it starts off with a boy and his friends playing with a dog. Quote, Mira moved in a wary circle, her net dangling loose in her left hand, the slender three-pronged frog spear poised in her right. But then the dog remembers that he's a wolf and his angry brother shows up and things get serious as if to say, 
Boy and his dog stories are nice and all, and we need some happy moments, but don't forget that this is a song of ice and fire. But then it is happy again, because naked Hodor comes in and waves the wolves off, and it's uh, that's kind of funny. <laughs> and this is a, a, a moment where we should take a second to talk about TV, not to talk about what it did, but what it didn't do. And we know this from watching the show, but it's even more apparent when you hear Dave and Dan comment on it, and that they didn't really want to appeal to people who were interested in fantasy. They, they intentionally cut a lot of that out, which we know from watching it, they definitely cut a lot of out, especially the direwolf stuff. That was one of the major ones. So this is one of the things that the books are going to get far deeper in. And we know that the way the show ended, one of the many differences is going to be that the books are going to have a lot more magic and supernatural stuff. And in fact, this batch of chapters is a good example of that. We have things like Renly's assassination. We have Jockin uh, doing, using some forms of magic in his assassinations. And then, of course, we have the brand stuff, which is full of green dreaming and skin changing and, well, explaining how some of this works. So let it not... Not only did the TV show not have it, they barely explained how it works. So why would they explain how it works if they're not even going to have it? So Jojen prods Bran quite a lot about his dreams. And even though Bran just clearly isn't that interested in talking about it, Jojen pushes him. And it's interesting we see how the wolves, particularly Summer, being Bran's wolf directly, you uh, picks up his emotions. And that's, it's a mixing of the supernatural and the way dogs actually do behave. Dogs really do mirror their master's emotions. When a, a, the human gets scared or angry, a lot of times a dog picks up on that and uh, realizes where it's focused. It's a very interesting connection that humans and, and uh, canines can have. So George is playing on the natural elements here while adding the supernatural. He builds some uh, camaraderie with, with Jojen. Bran and Jojen do rather. They, rather, Jojen builds it with Bran, to be more accurate, by telling him about his dreams and how he had very similar dreams and how they were but he was sick when he was a kid and how that gives them that's clearly how part of what enabled the three-eyed crow to come to them in the first place this also touches on ancient symbolism ancient myth making with odin who gave an eye for wisdom now you have Bloodraven, who gave an eye for wisdom indirectly, he of course lost the eye in, in battle. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to pluck this eye out and gain wisdom. It wasn't intentional, but it's still, the symbolism still maintains, even though the, the structure is a little different. And instead of, now George is playing with that idea a bit, instead of just losing an eye, you have other forms of, of physical reduction or some sort of physical suffering or ailment in order to parallel or mirror the idea of losing an eye. And that's a big, big rabbit hole that we're going to continue to talk about over the course of many more brand chapters. So here's, uh, but here's where we get to the explanations of how Jojen has all this evidence and proof of over his own life, how his dreams come true. And that's part of what he's doing here is convincing Bran of this, which later when Bran starts to have his own dreams and they start to come true, it becomes clear to him. But this is that process. Let's get into it. Quote. It was a green dream, so I knew it was true. A crow was trying to peck through the chains, but the stone was too hard and his beak could only chip at them. Did the crow have three eyes? Chojin nodded. Summer raised his head from Bran's lap and gazed at the mud man with his dark golden eyes. When I was little, I almost died of gray water fever. That was when the crow came to me. 
So there's something we learn much later from directly from Bloodraven. He explains the rarity of green seers and green dreamers. Something like one in a thousand, he says, is a skin changer or green green dreamer, and one in a thousand thousands is uh, has the relative powers that Bran has, if not the degree of powers. And for Jojen's case, you know, as he says, Greywater fever almost got him, and that was this weakness in his mind is enabled Bloodraven to get in his dreams, which is very similar to what Bran happened, right? Bran was in a coma, and that's when the Three-Eyed Crow first came to him. And Bloodraven also much later explains that very frequently eye color is impacted in a person who has these powers. Bran is a, is a counterexample to that. He does not have anything going on with his eyes, but Jojen has the green eyes. And that is exactly what Bloodraven refers to. Bloodraven says sometimes it's also red eyes, which of course that refers to him. He has the red eyes. We also close a bit of a loop from a prior Bran chapter when Jojen feels Bran inside Summer. He tells Bran that he felt him inside Summer that first night in the Godswood from Bran's perspective. So we see Jojen's side of this, the first time we see Bran's side. And it's really interesting. Not only can Jojen tell that Bran is in Summer, but he could tell what emotions he was feeling. He points out, he's like, I felt you falling. So it's not just sensing Bran's presence, it's sensing what he's feeling in that moment, which is pretty significant it's it's a it it's, speaks to jojen's abilities being well they're greater than just dreaming clearly he can identify brand's presence in a direwolf uh, so he has some sort of skin changer detection ability <laughs> for lack of a better word and it goes so deep that he can sense the emotions being felt by the skin changer so but the most important thing not just the bonding and being sick as a kid being similar age it's just oh my God, Bran realizes that someone else has seen the Three-Eyed Crow. And this is a huge deal for him because he's been afraid to talk about it. It's something that makes him feel different. And he already feels very different because he's isolated because of his his disability. Uh, So this is Jojen trying to restore a lot of his confidence and tell him he's a special being. And, you know, his, yes, he's crippled, but he has abilities far beyond almost everybody else who's ever existed and ever will. And, well, here's a quote. You are the winged wolf, Bran, said Jojen. I wasn't sure when we first came, but now I am. The crow sent us here to break your chains. This is another thing. He's a big believer in the three-eyed crow and his mission, though he doesn't even seem to know what that mission is. He doesn't mention the others. Doesn't really even hint at them. He just says, we got to go to the three-eyed crow. He doesn't really say why. And, you know, I never really thought about this too much before, but Jojen is very similar to Melisandre in a lot of ways. He's this, this, this certainty of belief is one of the things that first led me to this connection. And then once I started thinking about it, it's just the pattern is even larger. He's a similar role to Melisandre. Uh, for example, they're, they tell the future quite a bit, and they're paired up with a character that they're a major influence on. Physically, they're almost the extreme opposite. That's a kind of a trick to make them seem different. But when you realize just how this, how strictly these comparisons go, it's almost uh, the reverse. And, you know, Jojen is, would be small for a girl, but he's a boy. Melisandre would be big for a man, but is a woman. Jojen's really young and Melisandre is probably supernaturally old. And they're also presented differently in that Melisandre, well, for now, is mostly directed at Stannis, who is not a POV character. And she isn't either yet. While Jojen 
to Bran is, is paired up with the, you know, Bran is a POV character. So eventually Mel is going to see Bloodraven and see him as an enemy, which is another example of how these two are kind of opposing, even though they're not necessarily really opposed. That's just how he, she perceives it at this point. Also, the coloring, right? Super green. Jojen, uh, it's a little confusing because TV Jojen wasn't all green. He didn't even have the green eyes or the green clothing. But in, in the books, he is all in green, including the green eyes. And just like Melisandre is all red with red eyes. And of course, his utter confidence and faith is another thing. That's Like I said, that's the thing that first drew me to this comparison. He is so sure. He is 100% confident. And he does, and, and not just in his mission, but in his destiny, his life. Uh, think about having faith that runs so deep that you have these snarling direwolves coming right at you. And he's so sure, so confident, even though he's a, you know, a kind of a weak kid. <laughs> he's got this incredible sense of destiny and uh, confidence that he doesn't even get out of the way of these wolves. His sister has to yell, like, dude, get out of the way. Jump, you know, don't let these wolves. He's like, ah, I'm not bothered by that. He does listen to her, but still it's, it strikes me as similar to Melisandre in that, you know, he talks about, this is the day that I'll die, or this is not the day that I'll die. Every morning in Melisandre's chapter, we learn that every morning she, that's the first thing she does is looks into the night fires or the fires to see danger to her. So she's checking for her own death. <laughs> just kind of like Jojen's referencing the same thing. So that's really cool. I, Jojen just knows yeah Jojen just seems to know mel is looking it's it's a little different but it's yeah. a similar concept that they're both have this uh ability to see the future and it it's includes a little bit of self-preservation yeah, or this at least is the, awareness this is the first time we really see that Jojen, you know knows about his death yeah you're right that's you know, true you have that line where you obviously today is not the day that i die and all that but specifically Jojen, it's saying him sad her defiant as if, you know, Yojin had expressed it to her and he's come to peace with it, but is sad about it. And she's like, it's not going to happen. Yeah, she doesn't... Uh, doesn't doesn't put stock into it completely. Doesn't I think, think it has to happen. Yeah, and that's a great point because I think it it, it leans into when Jojin says they always come true. Yeah. And Mira says they sometimes come true. And I think that might be at the heart of that disagreement is Mira doesn't want to accept that... If she accepts that they're all true, then she has to accept this part about his death. Mm-hmm. And that would be kind of a willful denial. And she's young too. She's not as young as him. He's, she's no little grandfather, but you know, it's tough to accept that you know that your brother knows his own death date. It's a strange thing to have to reckon with, right? Yeah. Uh, so Jojen also knows, it's interesting too, how much he knows about these powers. Blood Raven explains a lot of the business of green seeing later, but Jojen already knows quite a bit here. And you wonder if he got that from his dreams or maybe some from his father, Howland Reed, a little more on Howland coming up. But here's a quote that shows just how deep his knowledge seems to go about what, about these uh, mysteries and about Grant's powers. With two eyes, you with two eyes, you see my face with three. You could see my heart with two. You can see that that Oak tree there with three, you could see the acorn, the oak grew from, and the stump that it will one day become. With two, you see no farther than your walls. With three, you would gaze south to the summer sea and north beyond the wall. And we have a bit of a pattern here that eventually wins out. The supernatural eventually wins out in Bran's mind because the evidence is just overwhelming. But 
the people that he really trusts, these people he's learned to trust his whole life, the people that he knows his father trusted, that's a big point here. He Bran believes Lewin because Lewin was his father's counselor. But the pattern being that Lewin downplays things that Bran just learned and got evidence of. So it's a conflict in Bran's mind. And like I said, eventually it breaks because, well, not only does Lewin die, but the supernatural becomes overwhelming. Uh, but for now, this is part of the process of Bran slowly coming to accept these very difficult things to accept. Quote. Oh, to be sure, there is much we do not understand. The years pass in their hundreds and their thousands. And what does any man see of life but a few summers, a few winters? We look at mountains and call them eternal, and so they seem. But in the course of time, mountains rise and fall, rivers change their courses, stars fall from the sky, and great cities sink beneath the sea. Even gods die, we think. Everything changes. Yeah, and... That's so true. And, and A Song of Ice and Fire is done over such a huge scale. Not necessarily the story that it's set in, but the history and all the world building spans huge amounts of time that we can't conceive of and that are also partially concealed by the haze of, of history and the unknown. Uh, and of course, this Lewin, uh, speaking to what Lewin said, he's like, everything does have cycles and the cycles might be too large for humans to detect it. He, he actually gets into his own, the problems with his own perception. He's really hitting the, the target without realizing it. It defines his bias, uh, to, but it's also, he's a kind of admitting without realizing just what he's admitting. But yes, these, even gods can die maybe. And with, with these cycles of magic, which is perhaps the most relevant cycle to discuss here. Yeah, he says, well, magic is dying. Magic is gone. But then he mentions these cycles that could be huge. He's like, well, why do you think it, how can you say that, that magic is dead if you also admit that these cycles can play out over centuries? Maybe this is just the, a down point. And in fact, it's not. It's a coming back point. What and it I really mean, is is the end of a down point. Yeah, I mean, and I think that also speaks to what Lewin expresses his own disappointment. Yeah. Not wanting to get his hopes up again. He wishes he was yeah. living during a time of wonders. <laughs> yeah, I do think there's an element of that, that, you know, he had this this sense of imagination and wonder and hope. And no, it wasn't real. It was snuffed out by the Citadel in this world where they're trying to create, uh, to paint a world that isn't accurate. It's interesting that these the scientists types there, they, that's the closest modern real world parallel we have to them besides scholars. Other uh, scholar scientists, whatever. Uh, it, it, it's not, um, yeah. They're they know magic was real. <laughs> they know so it's they can't really deny that it was real. But they some for some reason uh, they prefer a world without it because it gives them more power, uh, or maybe not because. But that is a fact. It does give them more power, whether that's what they care about or not. Certainly, some of them would. Anyway, but it's the sim- the symbolism here is really major because. What's holding back Lewin is his is his maesterly education quite a bit. That's a big part of it. And his, so symbolically, it's his chain that's holding him back. And likewise, that's how the chain is, is portrayed for Bran. It's a stone chain holding him down, quote. I dreamed of a winged wolf bound to earth with gray stone chains. Gray stone chains. Gray. The gray is the... Th- color of the maesters, the gray rats, the gray sheep. That is frequently how they are described. 
Um, and basically, in, in order for Bran to fly and to be the the winged wolf and to be the green seer that he is, he's got to stop listening to Lewin. <laughs> he's got to believe. He needs to have this leap of faith. He has to not be rational in the way in in ways like this because the world around him is not rational. Rationality makes sense in our world because we do live in a mostly rational world. We don't have people casting spells. We don't have prophetic dreams. Well, not that I know of. <laughs> so it it doesn't make sense for a broken boy to do the things he thinks he'll never do in this last bit of lines of this chapter, quote. So long as there was magic, anything could happen. Ghosts could walk, trees could talk, and broken boys could grow up to be knights. But there isn't, he said aloud in the darkness of his bed. There's no magic, and the stories are just stories. And he would never walk, nor fly, nor be a knight. Wrong. <laughs> those are exactly the kinds of truths that do not apply to him. Those are true. Those things are true for most boys, for most girls, for most men and women. But Bran is different. He is an exception. And this era that he's living in is also an exception. So this is the kind of thinking holding back Lewin. His chain is holding him back. And by extension, it's holding back Bran because Bran trusts Lewin. Ghosts are walking. That's what it says. Ghosts could walk. Trees could talk. Broken boys could grow up to be knights, but there isn't. But ghosts are walking. Trees are talking. <laughs> He's already walked and flown into Dance with Dragons. And Hodor may never literally be knighted per se, but fighting with Brandon Control, that's close enough. I don't think he has to actually be knighted to, for that, to, that you know, foreshadowing to come to bear. He may not be a knight, but he'll be a king. <laughs> that's, that's for sure. So yeah, <laughs> let's talk about themes, and that is one of them, the king theme. We spoke at great length at how Bran's upbringing was enviable, and Danny's was not, right? Danny was chased and sold and uh, constantly scared, and her brother is a horrible influence. Meanwhile, Bran has older brothers and sisters who were very good to him. His father and mother were very good to him. He's uh, He had wealth and a good education. So, but now this is changing because his education did not prepare him for any of this. Nothing Ned or Cat or Lewin has taught him, prepared him for any of this. Well, very little of this. And this is where Danny is getting support. People are telling her. The script is flipped here. Danny did something far too real and visible to be doubted. And the world around her is completely backing her up. They're like, yeah, mother of dragons. They're, they're throwing parties for her. The most fancy city in the world has this huge heroes rock star welcome for her. She's a child of destiny and everything around her is, is confirming that. Bran is also a child of destiny, but only, only Jojen and his dreams are confirming that. Whereas everything else from Lewin to even smaller, less important characters around Winterfell are also downplaying this. Which is funny because he lives in this ancient supernatural north that has all sorts of... Uh, relation to the old gods, all these stories. And bet all these people around him are like, no, nah, no, nope, that stuff's all gone. So it's really neat. He, he's, a, he's a crippled boy in a world like Westeros. So that makes him an object of pity uh, who many of his own people would rather forget about. While Danny is this object of extreme desire, you know, she's attractive and marriageable. If you're a, if you're a dude with ambition, you have the, like, that's what Zaro wants. Even though Zaro is not into women, he sees that aspect of her and it makes him hungry and makes him salivate. He's like, Ooh, I could marry her and get a dragon and this could all be mine. 
No one's out here trying to marry Bran and take his powers or, uh, you know, abscond with his abilities or make use of him through ambition, unless you count Bloodraven. But Bloodraven seems to have non-personal ambitions here. Now compare the whisperings of the Northern Warriors at the Harvest Feast and comments like, I'd sooner be dead, to what Danny gets at Karth. They're literally throwing wealth and support at her, telling her how special she is, and Bran is being told the opposite. So it's really cool. It's, uh, I mentioned Jojen and, and his dreams, but I guess it's fair to say Osha is another person that's pushing him in the direction of his true destiny. At the start of this book, Danny has emerged from an ordeal of hunger and exposure in hostile terrain. To deepen this parallel, that's where Bran's going at the end of this book. Now, he won't be in the desert. He'll be in the opposite of the, you know, a snow, snowy wasteland. But he's going to have hunger and exposure and be chased. And um, it's going to be a bit similar. Also a bit similar to um, one of my favorite brand parallels, Baylor the Blessed, who walked through the desert of Dorne. And of course, if what we've seen is true and Brand will, after a fashion, quote unquote, succeed Danny um, as ruler of Westeros, then it's fitting that these themes are paired with these two particular characters, these two very layered themes really touch on that. And so let's move to the King Bran portion of this uh, particular chapter. Quote, You were sitting at supper, but instead of a servant, Maester Lewin brought you your food. He served you the king's cut off the roast, the meat rare and bloody, but with the savory smell that made everyone's mouth water. The meat he served the phrase was old and gray and dead. Yet, they liked their supper better than you liked yours. Yeah, so there's a lot of things in that, in that little passage. Instead of a servant, it says Lewin serves directly to him. And that's interesting because, you know, maesters always serve the person in charge. They're tied to the castle and thus the lord or the king. And it doesn't seem Bran is happy as, as king. He's also not happy about this news. This is some red wedding foreshadowing, roughly. Uh, and, and the reason... One of the reasons that the Freys are like their supper better than Bran liked his is because Bran is going to become king because of, in part because of the death of several of his family members. And that's not good. You don't want to, most people don't want to move up in the world because of the deaths of their family members. But as we've seen, these two uh, Walders are quite okay with that. In fact, they kind of openly discuss it happily until Lewin is just like, you awful kids, shut up. <laughs> and they pretend that it's like, oh, yeah, we were just, um, yeah, we're not so awful. No, they're so awful. So later up, too, and Bran is going to think of this line. He's going to think they like their supper better than yours in his next chapter when news of, I believe, Steveron Frey's death comes. They, they specifically talk about the succession letter. So there's something brutally tragic added here Lewin's, uh, about Lewin's death. Lewin's influence was harming Bran's development. Right. We just talked about that. So it's almost like he had to get out of the way for Bran. We don't we don't he didn't have to have died, but he he needed to be gone or Bran needed to be gone. Lewin would never have sent Bran beyond the wall. Right. There's there's no chance he would have okayed that, nor Sir Roderick. It's so it's interesting from a story plotting point. Lewin had to step aside in some way. And so George, of course, does this in a brutal, brutal way by having Ramsay come and sack the castle sort of to drive all these other plot lines and these characters to where they need to be. Now, of course, the way that happens is going to happen pretty soon. 
it's a bit alluded to in this chapter because it's talked about that Sir Roderick is gone. He's off to go deal with the Hornwood situation. And this is where we get confirmation that uh, of the of Lady Hornwood's death and her eating her fingers, which is said that, you know, she was hungry. That's the suggestion. But as we know later from Theon's chapter, she probably bit her fingers off because Ramsay flayed them. And the pain is so severe that you'd rather not have the finger than suffer the pain of it being skinless. That is precisely Theon's thoughts in his first Dance of Dragons chapter. And it's pretty awful. <laughs> That's a circle maybe we didn't need to have closed. <laughs> but we did. So let's close it. Uh, and of course, we, it's mentioned that Roderick is almost as mad at Manderley for seizing the Hornwood Castle uh, in his words, to prevent the Boltons from seizing it. Now, of course, Manderley versus Bolton is far from over. Uh, in A Dance with Dragons, of course, Manderley is openly hostile towards the phrase and uh, by extension, a bit towards the Boltons. And it's the first time, Theon notes that it's the first time he notes that, that Roose Bolton shows a bit of fear when he sees the phrase and, and Manderley's kind of going at it. I but think, more on that later. Oh, yeah, I think it's so interesting that Rod, that Sir Roderick is so upset with the man release because he's so wrong. Yeah. Ultimately, like they really needed to try to do anything to help. It seemed like they had a, maybe Wyman has, there is some ambition in play. Yeah, there definitely better, is a lot of ambition in play, but still, like if, if Sir Roderick only knew. Yeah, oh, I like, agree. That's what I'm saying. I think Manderley probably has a better idea of who Ramsey Bolton, Ramsey, uh, well, at this point, Ramsey Snow is at this point. Like they just, like a couple of chapters ago, they're like, we hardly know who this guy is, but he's, it seems like Wyman has a better idea. <laughs> so yeah, I totally agree with you. <clears throat> and Roderick being away, of course, is part of what opens the door for Theon and the Ironborn, which opens the door for Ramsay. So it's all, you see all these very important plot elements come together. What's about, we have this long stretch of Bran kind of existing at Winterfell and learning and growing and kind of coming to grips with who he is now. And then it's all just going to be it's very sudden that he's no longer in one place. Joe Buckley agrees with our curiosity about uh, Mira and the not being in denial about Jojen's insistence about his death. So that's another person backing this theory. I think, I think a lot of us see it that way. I think that's kind of perhaps the most popular view of the situation in the fandom right now. Yeah, I mean, it's just four words, but I think it says so much. Him sad, her defiant. Yes, you're right. It's very efficient four words. It says so much. Um, it's, it's also, Joe also weighs in on Lewin's backstory. It makes him more endearing, even though he's wrong. Like we said, we can all relate to being a kid and, and having the sense of wonder and having it be taken away uh, wrongly. <laughs> Which is that's thing we can't necessarily relate to the wrong part. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's really interesting. Um, the point that Lewin brings up about what about all the thousands of dreams you had that didn't come true? It's a good argument. And it's a good argument. It's very true in the real world. Yeah. You, you know, are driving, you just you're like, I just keep hitting red lights. Well, what about all the green lights you always hit? It just stands out because it was it's, unusual. Yeah, it's different. It makes you think more. You don't notice. Yeah, you don't notice when things don't when they behave normally or they don't slow yeah, you down. Yeah, exactly. Um, but in this case, no. There actually is something very unusual going on. Yeah, very unusual. So uh, Bran also thinks that John's at the wall and uh, Joe Buckley wonders if they're ever informed about the Great Ranging. I don't recall them ever getting uh, informed about it, perhaps before uh, Winterfell is, is sacked. 
Um, but yeah, so I don't think they ever hear about that. Um, but they certainly, Brand certainly goes north and learns more things about what's up with John. But that's much later. Jaded Redhead says Bran considers how Mira and Jojen never treat him like a child. In contrast to Danny's last chapter when she complains that Jorah seems to always treat her like a child. Excellent catch. Didn't catch that myself. And it certainly adds more, another layer to this Bran-Danny comparison, which I think is uh, a really cool comparison that we're finding a lot more matches for throughout this reread that I think a lot of the fandom, certainly myself, was unaware of uh, prior to the show ending and seeing the reasons to look for these things. Comment from David Howlett. Given the fact that the respective ages of the two are slightly tricky to pin down, it's interesting to consider that Lewin and Marwin could have entered the Citadel around the same time and hence may, may well have studied together. And Marwin just never bowed to, uh, I guess he was a little more incorrigible. He didn't listen. He was like, nah, y'all are wrong. There's magic out there and I'm going to prove it. And certainly Marwin is anything but unconfident about this. And of course, there's so much evidence he's right. We don't even need to get into that. Of course he's right. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so some people have asked about the whole Greywater watch thing, the castle and that it moves and that they can't send ravens there. I honestly have, don't know what to make of that. I mean, a floating castle, it's probably small. It probably moves in the sense of it doesn't move very much. I always kind of, as much as I could picture it, like, you know, how there's giant, you know, critters and creatures and turtles and such. Yeah. I like to picture it as if it's built on, so like a, a creature that actually moves. I don't yeah. think that's what it is, but that is kind of what I imagine that's, down. That works for me. You know, like I just pictured all on the like a giant turtle. A lot, yeah, <laughs> a giant turtle, there, that's funny. But like it would be a lizard lion, which doesn't make sense. <laughs> Again, I don't think there's any creature that it would be. Yeah. But in terms of moving, it's a very fantastic, you know, type of element, I think, to have something built on the back of, you know, yeah, a living definitely. creature. Uh, so I wondered, yeah, I, I kind of am a little doubtful that we'll actually ever see it, though, to get, like, an explanation for what the deal is. I'm a little dubious that we'll we'll see it on screen. Yeah, I have two things here. One, Jaded Redhead says it's possible that only the path to it moves. It's great. Oh. Um, and the other thing I wanted to point out Well, that was, would mean the ravens would be able to find it. But still, it's a good point. Yeah, okay. So the other thing I wanted to bring up was something that Brian E., uh, pointed out to us ages ago. That was the first person that pointed out to me. I can't believe I never noticed it. That this is Howland's moving castle, as in Howell's moving castle. Um, and wait, so, what's that from? Howell's moving castle. Yeah, that's uh, an anime film, Studio Ghibli. Oh, okay. And so it's very clearly a reference to that. Nice. Like, how could it not be? I guess. Anyway, Brian has pretty every, tight. Yeah. Every chance Brian has to remind us of that. Uh, little reference he does so shout out to him i think yeah. that's a great call um whether that ha- means there really isn't much meaning to us ever seeing gray water watch or not i don't yeah. know now we don't expect to see gray water watch but we do expect to see howland reed and there is a really good clue here and this is one that i've been thinking about since the early days and i mean like when i first started reading the series 2001 2002 it's long been wondered what exactly howland reed did to save Ned from Arthur Dane. The show show had Howland Reed sneak up on Arthur and stab him in the back, which it might just be that simple. I, I'm not going to argue against that. I doubt, I think it's probably a little different than that. It, the, the options range from Howland doing something supernatural, like warging Arthur Dane, not permanently, but just enough to stun him for a second so that Ned has a chance. That seems a little too much for me. I don't think there's enough evidence that Howland has that kind of power. but the net 
that's where I think this is where uh, there's the, personally, I think this is the best explanation. And it comes up in this chapter. And because, of course, the net fighting with the direwolf is how we open the chapter. Now, Ned says, you know, Arthur would have killed me if not for Helen Reed. It doesn't explain why. So something happens. There's also a possibility that it's uh, that Howland gets them to talk. That seems even less likely than uh, the warging thing. But I think that using the net is entirely possible. And we get the to tie Arthur up. And that's sort of alluded to here in how we see uh, Bran asks, you know, who taught you to fight? Like, did your master at arms teach you that? And they say, we don't have a master at arms. My father taught me to fight with a net. So, yeah. So I think there's a strong chance that that is our answer, that Arthur Dane was going to take out Ned, but he got netted. Netted? Netted? Ah. (laughs) And that was all the difference. A couple of comments from y'all here. It looks like people point out Cranigs are literally man-made floating islands. Bronwyn Holler and Leaf Underhill point out that raft houses move in a bog. Okay, so there is some, this is some very good real-world explanation. I maybe could have done some more research and learned this, but I apparently never have. So that's cool. I didn't know that a Cranig was a man-made floating island. That's the definition of a Cranig? Yeah. yeah. Oh. I did not know that either, so I thought well, that was interesting. All right, that was a blind yeah. spot in our knowledge. Partially or it in, it's a partially or entirely artificial island. Okay, yeah. very cool. So. That's neat. Uh, we have a contrast here, a nice catch by a couple of y'all, that uh, Lewin is described as hopelessly untidy, which is a complete opposite of Pycelle, who Tyrion noticed that he's extremely organized. So, yeah. You wonder if Lewin had different teachers that he would have, you know, maybe come out a little differently. Stefan B. points out, Summer's anger is a metaphor for how we cannot always control our anger and or be rational and Hodor represents how we can deal with that. Help from others. Uh, yeah, it's really neat that Summer gets so angry because Bran is getting angry at being confronted with who he is and, and what that means about his future and what and not just what it means what he is, it means what he isn't because it, it reminds him he's not going to be a knight and all these other things. Uh, but that is very poignant. Good, good comment by Stefan B. there. Our last uh, little bit to deal with here for this chapter is uh, wondering for a moment why green dreamers and green seers have these frailties and what, how that's relevant and how that may apply to other characters. There's a longstanding theory that Euron was uh, touched when he was young as well. We don't know what frailty he may have had that would have opened him up to this. Maybe it's not necessary for him to have a frailty. Maybe that's just common, not a requirement. But pretty much all the examples we have have you uh, give that. I think it's an interesting point here by River Missoula, who brings up, I mean, in the real world, that nearly dying is the first step to becoming a shaman. And that people having those sorts of experiences often makes them opened up, feel opened Mm, up, Near-death experiences or like big heavy trips or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But, um, and I also think it speaks to the idea that we have in the real world as well, that when you lose one sense or one ability, that something else is heightened. That's a good, very good point. Yeah, that's a very um, in a magical point. way we have it here. But I mean, yeah, that's that's very true. Yeah, when someone loses their eyesight, they very often their smell and sense of hearing and all that gets much stronger. Yeah, so uh, you know, just if you, practice, you use it. Yeah, more. 
Um, so it does, it isn't a one-to-one translation here. It's not like, oh, Blood Raven lost an eye, so now he can do this, or um Bran had this near-death experience and can't walk. But I still think it speaks to these um beliefs we have in the real world. Yeah, you're right. It's the same kind of thing that George is playing with the dog relationship. He has this, you have humans and dogs have these real strong relationship, but George adds a supernatural element to it. I think that's the same pattern that you've just pointed to here, and you and River Missoula have pointed to here. You have People, characters like Bran and Jojen nearly dying in their and in their dreams, Blood Raven comes to them. So instead of them having this personal transformation from a near-death experience, it's boosted by a third party with three eyes <laughs> using magic. That is very cool. Okay. Uh, that's possibly the chapter we'll spend the most time on. We'll see. We'll see. Let's go to Tyrion 7. Lancel Lannister, an erotic life, a.k.a. the one where Tyrion steals Cersei's plaything. Since we love to anchor ourselves with the first line each time we've taken note uh, of some really excellent openers over time here. Uh, And here's this one. The rushes were scratchy under the soles of his bare feet. Okay, well, they can't all be incredible and super meaningful. (laughs) But this seems deliberate because this chapter is set during a normally quiet hour where sleep would be expected. So this mood is part of George R.R. Martin's plan with regards to the tone of this chapter. uh, And it's also Tyrion's line of thinking, quote. Does Lancel think to find me drowsy and slow of wit at this hour? As we see from Tyrion's actual first chapter in A Game of Thrones, he's reading all night constantly. This is normal for him. We already know he's accustomed to operating without much sleep, so this is, yeah, this is not uh, a great plan of Lancelot's wealth. Well, probably Cersei's plan, really. Many people look at his stature and assume he's weak, but just like we talked about with Bran, yeah, his stature is uh, not a great help to him in life, but that is part of why he's got such a strong mind. It's a thing very well described in John and Tyrion's chapter uh, back when he says, you know, why do you read so much? And he's like, well, so this chapter shows that really well. Tyrion just absolutely dismantles Lancel here. And it's a, it's a joy to watch because you like, you like seeing people do, uh, do things they're good at really well. <laughs> it's fun to see expertise and skill in action, especially when it feels kind of righteous because what Lancel and Cersei are doing here is pretty dirty. Not that Tyrion doesn't do some dirty things too, but obviously most of us tend to root for Tyrion over Cersei, um, even if not exclusively 100% of the time. So, and, if, and then part of that is the framing of this chapter. Not only is he setting the tone with the, 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 the grogginess and the, the late night aspects, but frankly, more of us are just, we're more like Tyrion than Lancel. Uh, most of us are more likely to be up late in bed with a book than to be in bed with the rich ultra hot person at age 16. <laughs> I Speak mean, for right? yourself. <laughs> okay. Well, some of us are, are cooler than others, but <laughs> he's written for us to hate him. He's written in a way that we're, we're supposed to hate him though. Not without some depth because Tyrion feels pity for him. And we're supposed to realize that Tyrion's pity is, is uh, well-placed because he is a 16-year-old kid caught in between two power players manipulating him. And he, hasn't, he doesn't have much idea what's going on. He's, he thinks he does. He's got this youthful confidence. It's partly born from his incredible birth circumstances and life situation. Uh, but, of course, if you're trying to feel bad for him, it's easier the second time around. The first time around, maybe even Tyrion's pity isn't enough to send you in that direction. But knowing where Lancel is going, 
I don't know. I felt, I think I felt better. I felt worse from the first, you know, when I first discovered him. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't know. As I discovered him, get into religion and just keep messing things up. Less okay. sympathy for him. Okay. Okay. Tyrion thinks he won't live out the year, which is wrong, but he will be a very, very different person by the end of the year. Both He's bad. <laughs> He is uh, now he is Lord Derry, but he's already given that up. He was married to Gatehouse Amy, but he already gave her up. He walked with Cersei on her walk of atonement. So this is very much, it very much comes full circle. Of course, he wasn't naked. He was one of the warriors, marching with the warrior's sons. And of course, marching with the warrior's sons is the, uh, all you need to know about why he's no longer Lord Derry or married to Gatehouse Amy, because uh, well, he had to, you know, forsake those claims, his, uh, his lordship, to join the warrior's sons. So like you said, Ashea, his religion, uh, it's very interesting how much, and this is something I never really thought about until this particular reread, he has a lot in common with Aaron Dampier. Gets into a war. He's kind of lower on the totem pole in his family. Technically, Lancel is the heir to Kevin, but Kevin doesn't own property. So he's you know, the heir to a, a lesser branch. So it's similar-ish to Aaron being in the main branch, but also nowhere near the line of succession, the main line of succession. So Aaron started off as this cocky kid who, you know, would talk big and, uh, you know, do, you know, get into bets and, and things like that and wasn't devout and just kind of doing his thing. And then he gets into this, uh, he gets thrown in prison and nearly drowns and it changes him. Um, his experience makes him religious. That's pretty darn similar to what happened to Lancel, who gets badly, badly wounded in the Battle of the Blackwater at the end of this book. And uh, it totally changes him. He also, not unlike Aaron too, it makes him look a lot older than he is. Aaron uh, is not that old, but he has is, is haggard. Uh, and so is Lancel. Lancel's hair is going to turn gray uh, in, by the end of this book slash beginning of the next book. But he, like we said in this chapter, he's only 16. Another interesting theme going on here uh, is, well, uh, Tyrion leaning into ugly. <laughs> he, first of all, not only does he prefer ugly people for because they're scary, but he doesn't want handsome people around Shay, which is just touches on how uh, insecure he is about this, about his whole situation. And it's interesting, too, to pair with just how confident and, and accurate and uh, skillful he is at politics and just how naive and uh, unmoored when it comes to his love life. Uh, the, the level of naivete he has towards Shay versus how mature and wise he is about politics is quite a dichotomy, quite a disparity for him. But more on this ugly business, it's neat how he, he doesn't even, he doesn't, it doesn't register for him sometimes. Look at this quote from Sansa 3. Would you prefer black years? I'll give you Chella if a woman would make you more at ease. <laughs> he's like telling Sansa, would you rather have guard him or guard her? And she's like, he's it's like, would you prefer the woman with the ear necklace? <laughs> like, is she less scary to you? <laughs> like, would she make you more at ease? <laughs> Like, what, Tyrion? Are you serious? 
<laughs> so that makes uh, that, which is a clever writing by George because Sansa's learning to lie appropriately here and an easy to lie, easier to lie when there's a grain of truth. And Sansa's like, oh, they're scary. I don't want them there. And she, of course, the point is she doesn't want anyone guarding her door because she wants to be able to escape and go to the godswood. But Chella really is scary. So it's an easy lie to tell. Now, contrast uh, Lancel and Cersei, what they're doing, uh, which is, you know, not the bad part. I just mean that they're comforting each other, more like Lancel comforting Cersei. Lancel probably doesn't need the comfort because he's this cocky kid. But compare that to upscale Shatayas, where Tyrion is uh, pretending to go where he's actually going to see Shay. And it's a very interesting to the status angles here, looking at society and, um, well, Shay, uh, the way Tyrion treats Shay versus, say, the way the other sex workers at Chitayas are treating Tyrion versus how they, this bet, right? Um, Murray tries to get Tyrion to sleep with him. Uh, and they, she has a bet with one of the other sex workers um, that this will happen. Now, if Tyrion, now compare that to Brienne. This is, you know, the, the bet that all those knights had to get a kiss out of her. Why is this so different? It's a very deep statement on. Uh, how comedy should, quote unquote, should work, which is that you shouldn't punch down. It's all about power dynamics. If you're mocking someone above you, like these, these sex workers are using the only power they have, their, their wiles and their brains, to get Tyrion. Whereas, so he, he doesn't need to be too offended by this because there's, they have no power over him other than this little bit that they're trying to use. Meanwhile, all those knights mocking Brienne, they're, they're, more, they're, the, they're the power structure mocking this individual this this minority who has no one backing her so it's a lot cruel thus you can see where the cruelty angle is much different it's not cruel for them to have this bet about tearing even though it might make him feel a little awkward uh it's a big difference to a bunch of people punching down on someone who isn't part of the club like in brian's case now, uh, there's some humor here in this chapter because it's a Tyrion chapter there often is I love the uh this uh subtle reference here quote I'll release him on the morrow. I could swear that I hadn't harmed a hair on his head, but it wouldn't be strictly true. In any case, he's well enough, though I won't vouch for his vigor. Black cells are not a healthy place for a man his age. Cersei can keep him as a pet or send him to the wall. I don't care which, but I won't have him on my council. Well, you won't, but he won't have much more time to be in charge and Tywin is going to put him back on the council. Your own father will retake his hand job and put hand job whoa, and put him back there. But of course, the joke was, I could swear that I hadn't harmed a hair on his head. But of course, it, it kind of is strictly true. Shaga did that. <laughs> Shaga harmed the hairs on his head. <laughs> Joe Buckley points out how, how, di- how the disparity of, of Lancel trying to do verbal fencing with Tyrion. Tyrion, who has fence been practicing with Peter Baelish and Varys and Cersei and Pacell. <laughs> just Lancel is so out of his league. Joe points out how interesting it would be to have Cersei's POV this early in the game to see uh, you know, what her thoughts are, whether she really thinks she can trick Lancel or whether she really believes that Lancel can flip Tyrion, or that uh, whether she how much she sees Lancel as Jamie and things like that. Well, you know how much she loathes him, really, or <laughs> what's just in general what's going on in her head. You really wonder about that. And of course, uh, he says to Tyrion, quote, you'll have a lord, rather, Tyrion says to Lancel, she'll have a lordship from me before you're done. 
Well, it doesn't come from Tyrion, but Lancel does get that lordship. But, you know, as we say, he walks away from it pretty quickly. David Howlett expands on the parallel between Aaron and Lancel by pointing out the sexual abuse, which, yeah, I mean, Cersei sleeping with 16-year-old Lancel is sexual abuse, even though he, you know, wants it. It's certainly, you know, in our society, modern society, that is absolutely statutory rape. And there's a good reason we have laws like that. It's another, it's a yet another thing that speaks to power dynamics. Like Lancel could not have really said no to Cersei. Uh, well, maybe he could have. But it, it, the pressure for him to not say no was huge, setting aside the fact that he apparently was all up for it. But if he hadn't been, how would he have said no? So obviously the abuse to Aaron is more of the standard uh visible type of abuse, the more straightforward physical abuse, but this is still a, a strong parallel. Very good. Very good, very bad. Uh, oh, look at this little one. Quote. His stunted legs might make him a comic grotesque at a harvest ball, but this dance he knew. So last week we had a harvest pumpkin. Now we've got a harvest ball. <laughs> yep, all right on theme, considering how recently Halloween just passed here in the real world. Stefan B. set from Flick points out that Tyrion may enjoy playing the Game of Thrones more than he actually enjoys power. He likes winning. Yeah, he does. He, he really gets a, a pleasure out of um, coming out on top of all these exchanges. Uh, Joe Buckley points the same thing out, that getting over on people who would normally get over him for and look down on him is uh, it's kind of a like a punchback, you know, who's like getting back at them for all their all the things they're, they're no doubt thinking about him but that they aren't saying, or that some of them are saying. Another quick comment here. Tyrion thinks about how quickly Cersei recovered from the dosing he gave her. He says he's not too surprised because she is, after all, Jamie's twin, which implies that uh, Jamie is um, a quick healer, tough and strong, but we pretty much knew that. Of course, not tough and strong enough to regrow a hand. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's not Targaryen. He doesn't have part lizard blood. <laughs> all right. That is all for Tyrion 7. You can see how much quicker we got through Tyrion 7 is an important chapter. But Bran, uh, Bran 5, or was it Bran 4? Bran 4, yeah. Was more, ha- has so many more themes and, and supernatural things to talk about. So let's go to area. Area? Area 57? Area 51? No. Aria 7. You were just thinking of Aria after all that lizard talk. <laughs> Good point. The gang gathers at Hall, aka the one where Jockin is a killer genie. Genies are known by a trope that basically goes, set them free from their prison, usually a lamp, and they grant three wishes. Here, well, they're death wishes. They weren't in a lamp, but they were burning. Well, Jockin, there were three of them in there, three dudes. <laughs> but really, it's just the one giving the wishes. Still, George even plays with this trope to the point where he borrows the standard genie inversion foil where you use a wish to wish for more wishes. Arya later tries to wish for several deaths uh, with the weasel soup incident. And well, she gets it and she turns it around by, I've never seen a genie, uh, someone say uh, to a genie for my third wish, I wish you were dead, genie. But that's basically what <laughs> that's basically what Arya does with her third wish is says, I want you to kill yourself. And that's how she gets him to relent on the issue of more. (laughs) So it's pretty cool. Very clever, like Jock and the Death Genie. (laughs) And of course, this is George, though, so it's not just one thing going on. There's mixing and matching and layering and combining uh, combinations and shaking things up. 
Uh, so in, in this case, we don't just have uh, genies, we have gods and ghosts. Quote. Whatever names Heron the Black had meant to give his towers were long forgotten. Perhaps the ghosts know these names. It wasn't that long ago that Aegon's conquest happened, you know, in terms of how old Westeros is and how long back some aspects of Westeros history go. Heron Hall is only about 300 years old. So that's old, but, you know, it's not that old. Now, perhaps they also know meaning the ghosts, <laughs> that this chapter continues the early groundwork for this mammoth castle on the god's eye. And that's important because Hall is one of the most frequently seen locations in the entire series. But at this point in the read-through, we're just getting to know the place. So let me back that up a little bit. I think it goes, I haven't done the research to be sure, but I think it goes something like King's Landing, Winterfell, The Wall, and then Hall for the scenes that the most chapters are in. And of course, that may change by the end. But uh, if it does change, I don't think Hall is going to let up. I think we're going to continue to have scenes at Hall. I think we might see some huge scenes at Hall. We might see some climactic scenes in Harrenhal. Uh Let's talk about that in a minute. Let's, let's back up a little more and talk about some history. I mean, uh, it's, a key, it's key in Aegon's conquest, right? Um, it's, it's huge in Aegon's conquest. It's one of the first things that happens. It's the first uh, spot he goes for. It's key in the Dance of the Dragon. So shout out to House of the Dragon show announced this past week. You're probably going to see a lot of Heron Hall on that TV show as well. Certainly pops up in the, in the writings George did for it. It, it. it goes back and forth between the Blacks and the Greens several times during the war. And then it becomes super interesting after the war with Alice Rivers, Witch Queen of Heron Hall, which we did a, a whole two-hour Fire and Blood episode on um, many months ago with um, Joe Magician and Shakes of Thrones, I believe it was. Just real quick, as an aside, it's so interesting when you think about how Heron Hall was a big set piece yeah. in Game of Thrones. About them replicating that exactly for House of the Dragon, but slightly different. Just yeah. in terms of like, there are certain visual elements that have to be crossed over in the teams. I don't know. I just That's didn't think about much. And also, it's not in the show as much as you know. There's a lot of it, the, the time there is cut a little short, and you see, mm-hmm. and so much of it's indoors because it's just so yeah. big. You know, they they don't you know they had to save some money. I don't yeah. I don't fault them for that. So yeah, we'll get a little more of that. That's nice. I mean, I could see like a dragon landing on the wall or something really cool. They may really go uh, big time with that. Uh, so a goodly portion of this chapter is spent introducing us to uh, Hall, How big it is. How underused or completely unused parts of it are, which is just a part of the aspect of how big it is. Like, we can't possibly make use of all this castle. And uh, much more of it's going to be described later. I didn't even mention Daemon Targaryen's scoring of the Heart Tree during the Dance of the Dragons. And the Heart Tree itself we won't see till a little later. But the the Hall Heart Tree is frightening. And of course, uh, yeah, so there's a lot more to happen in Hall. Let's talk about where we think it may all wind up. A great theory that has been developed by several people. I think the first person to mention it on our show was Lady Gwyn. Shout out to Radio Westeros. If humanity does gather to fight the dead here in some sort of large gathering, uh, like humanity's last stand type of thing, it's a stark contrast to which cross-section of humanity is here at Harrenhal now. And I think that's part of George's plan in masking its uh, full purpose. Like, it's currently dreadful and filled with equally dreadful people. I mean, you got the Bloody Mummers, you got Gregor, Lurch, Hote, and most of these guys, including Roose Bolton, are going to rule the place for a while. So you have this long stretch of awful people ruling the place, awful things happening in the place, and awful scenes like the Bear Pit, uh, and then later stories from its past, like uh, Danelle Lost and Bathing in Blood, the Killer Bats, 
crazy stuff like that. So that is a really clever way for George to hide the fact that this dreadful, destroyed, doom-laden castle might actually be the savior for humanity. Not your standard fantasy trope last stand spot. A little bit like Helm's Deep with the idea of ghosts being there, but Helm's Deep also has caves and uh, there's lots of other differences, but it's got a, it's got some familiarity there. Of course, a big part of Ari learning about the castle, she's not just learning about the castle, but she's learning about the people. And here's a quote that shows what she's learning about the war. Lord Tywin would soon march on River Run, she heard, or he would drive south to High Gardens. No one would ever expect that. No, he must defend King's Landing. Stannis was the greatest threat. He'd sent Gregor Clegane and Vargo Hote to destroy Roose Bolton and remove the dagger from his back. He'd sent ravens to the Eyrie. He meant to wed the Lady Lysa Arryn and win the Vale. He bought a ton of silver to forge magic swords that would slay the Stark wargs. He was riding Lady Stark to make a peace. The Kingslayer would soon be freed. Lots of stuff, right? <laughs> so I think uh, I think we, Joe Magician showed up in the chat, and I think it's because we started talking about Heron Hall. He did a video on how strong, so I think he felt the call of of how strong. <laughs> he felt a strong call. <laughs> Arya thinks how she should have let Rorge and Biter and Jockin die. And well, leaving people to the others isn't a good option either if we're trying to look at parallels between the great, the distant future with the undead's arrival and what's happening now. Of course, that should what I mean by that should be straightforward enough. You don't want bodies left behind for the others to raise. Just, just a new soldier for them. But Jockin also believes he owes her for this. I wonder how sincere he is here. I kind of doubt he really truly feels responsible that he owes three deaths to the Red God. I mean, for one thing, Rorge and Biter aren't his responsibility. Uh, he doesn't. He doesn't owe the Red God for their lives. But maybe he's. God, I mean, he certainly has his reasons. It might be part of it might be his uh, recruitment drive for Arya, but maybe maybe he is have he does have some interesting beliefs about the way the gods work. And uh, well, a little more on that later. Only death may pay for life. That is a major, major theme for all of the Song of Ice and Fire. It's already big for Daenerys. We're about to have in this episode, the Shadow Baby. And of course, that seems to be part of Stannis' life force being drawn off to make the, this, this monstrosity, this baby, the shadow killer. And of course, it doesn't stop there with the shadow babies. Davos and others around Stannis and Mel will learn this lesson the hard way with the, uh, the, the offerings to R'hllor in terms of people. And now Arya is in this club, this Red God club too, quote, the red god has his due, sweet girl, and only death may pay for life. This girl took three that were his. This girl must give three in their places. Speak the names, and a man will do the rest. Yeah, um, it's interesting the uh, relating that to um, the, the, the concept of... Uh, oh, I totally lost my place here. Uh, relating that to the concept of whether Jockin is truly into uh, worshiping R'hllor. You wonder if George pivoted on this, whether originally he was going to have the House of Black and White be associated more directly with R'hllor or with the Red God. And because this whole death may pay for life stuff, it feels like it could be related to the Faceless Man ethos. But George even, either... Even Jockin's look, his hair, yeah. his coloring, you know? Yeah, red and white hair, yeah. Um, so that's really interesting. I wonder if he just decided to 
to pivot away from that connection and make it make them a little more unique and have their own kind of go in their own direction. So I, I, you wonder if that was what his original plan was, or if it's just he wants to introduce this all at once, because right along this, uh, this is paired with the introduction of Melisandre and some of these other concepts, well, other ways that death may pay for life. And of course, as we see the House of Black and White, you know, has respect for all the different facets, all the many faces of death. Yeah, yeah, you're totally God. right. So the Red God is just part of the many faced God. So of course he has respect for R'hllor. Yeah, that's that's a good point. The idea here's a here's a funny little related quote that is meant to be a tongue in cheek kind of humor that Shea you pulled here. She remembered hearing her lady mother tell father to put on his lord's face and go deal with some matter. Father had laughed at that. She could not imagine Lord Tywin ever laughing at anything. So that's very sneaky because more it's more about Tywin's personality and her father and mother a little bit um, and the difference between Ned and Tywin. But the whole put on his lord's face in reference to Arya just oh. learning about the faceless men. <laughs> that's a little sneaky George humor there, I think. Mm-hmm. A very particular wording. Um, all right. Uh, right before the offer of three deaths comes, like, you know, if we recall exactly what happened, she's dozing off to sleep and Jockin sneaks in, puts his hand over her mouth and is like, hey, chill out. Let's talk. She was just starting to have a wolf dream. Here's the quote. Arya was dreaming of wolves running wild through the wood when a strong hand clamped down over her mouth like smooth, warm stone, solid and unyielding. Yeah, that's so uh, just a building slow burn on on Arya getting into the wolf dreams. Uh, But it's notably two chapters after Bran's chapter where wolf dreams and green dreams and Jojen hammering Bran on what's real and that he needs to accept all this stuff. Well, this is George bringing, uh, filling this out through other POVs while also building it for Arya's own story because this isn't about Bran. This is, even though it's wolf dreams and, and skin changing, this is Arya's own wolf dreams and skin changing. And as I've pointed out elsewhere, her wolf dreams are just as common as Bran's, if not a little less intense. And, and she's certainly less aware of what's going on in them. Uh, but well, and to be fair, she doesn't have someone telling her about that, how they work and all that. Instead, she has Jock and Hagar giving her death wishes, death wishes. Now, I don't have much to say about Chizik's story in particular, except that it's designed to be so, so brutal that it catches Ari's attention to the point where she wants to immediately use one of her wishes on him because it's just so awful. And but, but you got to realize that Arya just saw far worse than what Chizik described meaning she saw the tickler kill lots of people. She saw the mountain be brutal relentlessly to innocent people. She saw complete horrible injustices regularly. But this is kind of who she is. It's more about other people than it is about her, even though she does, you know, certainly have concern for herself. Joe Buckley says that oddly enough, after our, all the horror of Arya's last chapter, she's actually in a little bit of a bubble here. It's not good, but it's way better than before. She's got a routine. She's got a place to sleep. She's eating regularly. That's a big improvement. Before she was, you know, eating acorn paste and wor- literally eating worms and bugs. And uh, Hot Pie and Gendry are all f- doing okay. They at least their skills 
are keeping them alive. Gendry being a blacksmith's apprentice saved his life, and Hot Pie being a baker, well, that's got value too. Even the cruelest cutthroat uh, types need their swords fixed, and they want to eat Hot Pie's tasty concoctions. So uh, it's a good... uh, it's good to have skills to keep you alive. And that's also a, a kind of a bit of social commentary that uh, the people who are born into situations that don't allow them or afford them the ability to have quality educations, well, that can be a, a real detriment in society. And uh, it's, it's kind of a privilege to have valuable skills. A little more about Harrenhal. It's just so freaking big. We're going to, like I said, we'll, we'll be talking about that throughout, but I have to give a nod to Joe Buckley's comments here because Joe is writing a, ca- a book on castles of Westeros. So he in particular is just super impressed by the fact that, that it's the, the gatehouse alone is like three times larger than Winterfell. Just the, just the gatehouse. It's so big. The Godswood of, of Harrenhal is 20 acres, 20 acres. That's so freaking huge. Whereas Winterfell's, if I remember correctly, is like three, I think. So, well, I, I am sure everyone listening or watching this has uh, seen that uh, Shade Aversity uh, video of Winterfell, where they created, designed Winterfell. You know, but just think about it. if you haven't if you haven't seen it, watch it, and if you have seen seen it, think about that. But three times, like think about how much bigger and how much bigger Winterfell was than the average castle. <laughs> it's wild. It really boggles the mind. Yeah, actually. one of the one of the points that Shadiversity. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. I think it was probably Shadiversity. Yeah, Shadiversity. Yeah, anyway, the, what the, the, he he points that he brings up is that Winterfell is probably is is larger. Necess- the, the way George is to his logistically de- detailed Winterfell it needs to be larger than he's described it. And so if that's also true for Aaron Hall, then oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) Great, great catch by Joe Buckley by uh, relating to the first assassination here. In naming Chiswick, Arya is sort of replicating how the Faceless Man first began, which is making wishes from slaves come true. That is a fantastic catch. Yeah, I think that's great. I don't even have much to say about it. It It's just true. It's like a yet more... uh, it's another layer that we didn't see, <laughs> which just inspires me to constantly be more uh, aware and to continue to be vigilant to look for these things. But also reminds me how important it is to have other people helping us out with this process, whether Joe Buckley, whether y'all listening right now, whether it's y'all on Patreon, whether it's y'all in our Facebook group or Flick groups. This is a group activity. This is a uh, group project. Uh, a very poignant quote, how many monsters does Lord Tywin have? that um that Arya thinks about and in, that is just that is Tywin in a nutshell the guy is awful like yeah he's got some skills he's he's got some intelligence he's got some cunning but damn he's brutal and the will, people he's willing to employ like his top men they're so bad <laughs> and they really are it is true to call them monsters I mean some of them like Gregor almost literally becomes a monster if he's not one in human skin at first ah so bad. More comments from y'all. Uh, Bronwyn Holler says, I assume that Jockin using the name Red God was a reference to them burning and R'hllor sacrifices are burnt. Yeah, I mean, if Jockin is being sort of Victorian-like, meaning he has superstitions or beliefs in a variety of gods and not just the, his chosen, you know, number one god, then he would know which, or at least have some sense of 
which god is involved in which scenario of life. And of course, that one's pretty straightforward. Burn, you know, burning up. It's like, well, that's clearly the red god that, you know, is coming up. Interestingly, too, we're going to be talking more about gods and the variety of gods in uh, our Catlin chapters just coming up shortly. So something else is, is a, as a whole, I want to point you not just from this chapter, is just how much this book kicks off the assassinations and how many there are. Uh, not in this book and a little bit in the next few books, but mostly here and early in Storm. We have Renly dying shortly. Uh, later on, a sorrowful man is going to be sent for Danny, and that's in like her last chapter of this book. Balon's going to be killed by a faceless man. Uh, probably during this book, though, it's actually told to us in the next book. It may actually happen during this timeline. And of course, Joffrey and Tywin are both going to die in a storm of swords as well. And it's pretty fair to call those assassinations. And Doran Martell is not unlikely to be assassinated at some point in the future if the show is even remotely accurate on that point, though we don't have to necessarily take the show's killer. We don't have to assume it's the Sand Snakes like it was in the show, but it could be. It could be Dark Star. It could be something like that. But regardless, I do think Doran Martell is going to be added to that list, though. It's fair to say that that's not part of this. He could also just sway die. this batch. Yeah, he could just die. He's yeah. for it. Doesn't frail. have to be. Yeah, or it could look like he just died. Yeah, that's you know? true too. It'll it would be believable for him to just die. Yeah. This uh, here's another line uh, that uh, you noted, Ashea. Yeah, it just made me really sad. It's more of a whole paragraph, I guess. No one ransomed the Northmen, though. One fat lordling haunted the kitchens. Hot pie told her, always looking for a morsel. His mustache was so bushy that it covered his mouth, and the clasp that held his cloak was a silver and sapphire trident. He belonged to Lord Tywin, but the fierce, bearded young man who liked to walk the battlements alone in a black cloak patterned with white suns had been taken by some hedge knight who meant to get rich off him. Sansa would have known who he was, and the fat one too, but Arya had never taken much interest in titles and sigils. And obviously we just... We see what happens. Yeah, in that's really bad. Yeah. Let's break this down. First of all, I just this is an, as an aside, one happy part about this is Sansa and Arya are thinking about each other. Arya yeah. and Sansa. Arya's thinking about Sansa here, and Sansa in her chapter, two chapters from now, is going to think about her. Uh, so, but yeah, let's 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 break this down. The fat lordling is why is a uh, Wendell Manderly, or what Willis Manderly rather, and Willis is of course going to be set free from the, from Harrenhal only to be recaptured. And return to Hall, where he is treated to horrible treatment. Uh, he's fed Vargo Hote <laughs> and is yet is also, you know, is traumatized horribly and collapses at Jamie's feet when he's sent back to White Harbor. And this is who Wyman Mandley described as fierce. Now, in this very, very notably, Wendell or Will- Willis is not described as fierce here, but Arya thinks of this other person, this fierce bearded young man who liked to walk the battlements alone in a black cloak patterned with white suns. That is Harry and Karstark. And Harry and Karstark, as far as we know, is still alive right now at the end of, of Dance of Dragons, even though uh, Alice Karstark has, with her new husband, the Magnar of Fen, uh, has taken control of, of uh, Carhold. So Harry and Karstark's claim could be a wrinkle uh, with uh, Alice and uh, Sigorn later. Seeds among seeds, y'all. So many things happening. Did I miss anything in that quote? Was that everything no. you wanted to cover? Yeah, no, that was it. Okay, exactly. cool. So I, earlier I 
pointed out how great it is to have all these eyes on each chapter helping us catch details and themes and thoughts that we may have missed. One of the things that I've been preaching uh, is to not just look for what is there, but what isn't there. The absence of things can be very telling. And Stefan B. has a great example here. Quote. Even Lannister men questioned how long Joffrey would hold the Iron Throne. The lad's got no army but them gold cloaks, and he's ruled by a eunuch, a dwarf, and a woman. Stefan's point being, no mention of Littlefinger there. Because Littlefinger is just as much... Off the radar, too. Off the radar. That's part of his play. That's part of how he wants to be. He doesn't want people to know that he's... He doesn't want this... this this, That particular form of attention. Uh, So that's a great catch by Stefan. There's also mention amongst all these rumors and what Tywin's going to do, what Joffrey might do, what this and that. There's also mention of of Beric Dondarrion, who is a big problem for Tywin. Um, And uh, there's mention of him being killed several times, which, of course, at the time, sounds like a silly rumor, but turns out to be quite accurate. Uh, We love the diversity of the Brave Companions, although there is nothing else to like about them other than maybe they're an interesting set of characters for the storyline despite being awful quote beneath the standard of a black goat with bloody horns rode copper men with bells in their braids lancers astride striped black and white horses bowmen with powdered cheeks squat hairy men with shaggy shields brown-skinned men in feathered cloaks a wispy fool in green and pink motley Swordsmen with fantastic forked beards dyed green and purple and silver. Spearmen with colored scars that covered their cheeks. A slender man in septon's robes, a fatherly one in maester's gray, and a sickly one whose leather cloak was fringed with long blonde hair. Okay, so we have a reminder that maesters are in gray, a fatherly one in maester's gray. That is Kyburn. A sickly one whose leather cloak was fringed with long blonde hair is Urswick, who I believe is one of the very few brave companions still alive in the current storyline. Uh, the slender man. Call them sep- what they are. They're the bloody mummers. They're the bloody mummers. They are not brave companions. Swordsmen with fantastic forked beards dyed green and purple and silver. Those are Tairashi. Spearmen with colored scars that cover their cheeks. Those are Volantines. Uh, the, the scars indicating uh, that they were tattooed, meaning they were slaves. Sept- slender man in Septon's robes is Septon Ut. Brown-skinned men in feathered cloaks, those are Summer Islanders. A wispy fool in green and pink motley, that's Shagwell. Squat hairy men with shaggy shields, those are Ibanese, some of whom Tyrion has in his employ guarding Shay. For Ib. With, yeah, for Ib. <laughs> Bowmen with powdered cheeks. Uh, I'm forgetting who those are. We got Lancers astride striped black and white uh, horses, which are Zorses. Those could be Jogos Nye. Shout uh, out to Girls Gone Cannon. Yeah, shout out to Girls Gone Cannon, our buddies over there doing great work. Uh, the goat, and of course the the um, copper men with bells in their braids. That's one of the most straightforward ones. Is the uh, the Dothraki, and of course Vargo Hode is at the lead with his goat's head helmet, and he is Kahoric. So that is quite a diverse batch. And the thing that brings it them also, all together, it also proves that hey, Dothraki can cross the they can narrow cross sea. the narrow sea. You're right. Good point. <laughs> and even Jogos Nye can make it all the way to Westeros. Those are the farthest traveled of this batch, I, I guess. Um, at least the ones named. But yeah, so this is this, the one thing that brings this wide, diverse group of characters together is how awful they are. <laughs> They're all terrible, brutal, killing, raping, greedy, just no love for each other. It's, yeah, they're, they're bad. But that's Tywin's, that's Tywin's legacy, bringing things like this to Westeros, unleashing them on his own people. 
even Whis, who is horrible, dissembles with Arya about how bad they are. Like, yeah, don't don't mess with them. Don't stay out of their way. And for Whis to say that is really something because Whis is just such a terrible dude himself. So we'll, we might want to do a where are they now on the you know, Brave Companions, but y'all can weigh in on which where are they nows you would like to Excuse see next. There's a lot me, of Aziz. uncovered. I'm sorry. Rude. Bloody mummers. Oh, I said it again. You did. The you're damn bloody res- mummers. You're too respectful. <laughs> I'm really concerned about you. <laughs> I love the bloody mummers. Okay, good. As long as you call them the right name. <laughs> All right, let's move on. That is the end of Aria 7. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Catlin 3 now. The one with Stannis and Renly's banter battle, a.k.a. F. Lightbringer versus a peach. Pray recall that Cat 2 ends with news that Stannis has arrived to besiege Storm's End. So in between that message and the start of this chapter, Renly has peeled away his cavalry and raced back south, leaving his infantry at Bitterbridge, which... That's going to matter a lot. <laughs> it's not and not in the way it mattered for Rob, where Rob separated from his infantry and his cavalry, and it worked out pretty well. This is going to have a much different impact on the story. Quote, The meeting place was a grassy sward dotted with pale gray mushrooms and the raw stumps of felled trees. Okay, imagine you're there with her. You're sitting right beside her. It's grassy. There are these stumps. There's these mushrooms. There's no trees nearby either. You can see, uh, and Catelyn spares a thought for how the war touches everything. Quote, Stannis Baratheon's foragers had cut the trees down for his siege towers and catapults. Catelyn wondered how long the grove had stood and whether Ned had rested there when he led his host south to lift the last siege of Storm's End. Yeah, we wonder about that too, but we wonder even farther back. But we'll start with the more recent history. Ned lifted the siege of Mace Tyrell, who clearly didn't have need of this grove, maybe because he cut down different trees or because he never intended to storm the walls. He was going to starve them out. Uh, He would have, too, if not for that nettling onion knife. Subtext aside here, uh, with all the history and backstory, the fact is this quote, this opening quote shows that they're standing in a wide open area where you can see in every direction. No one's going to sneak up on you. And that is the exact kind of straightforward situation that calls for Captain Obvious quote. We are the first, my lady, Hollis Mullen said as they reined up amidst the stumps, alone between the armies. Yeah, as if, like, really, she can't tell that no one else is there? It's like, oh, without you telling me, I would have thought other people were standing next to us. <laughs> A few months later, they see Stannis coming, and uh, and Hal Mullen says, that will be King Stannis, and Catelyn says, no doubt. <laughs> Captain Obvious, well, he does not miss his opportunities to get a few words in. And during those few moments we just skipped over for Captain Obvious-related purposes, Cat thinks on the very cool and incredibly ancient history of Storm's End. The Weirwood in its godswood could tell stories, and I say could, because, well, a few chapters from now, Mel is going to burn it. Quote. Some said the children of the forest helped him build it, shaping the stones with magic. Others claimed that a small boy told him what he must do, 
a boy who would grow to be Bran the Builder. So that is one of the stories that the Weirwood could maybe tell us, meaning the origin of Storm's End. There's a lot of cool stories told about it, uh, mixing in really interesting plot elements, Storm's End, Durin's God Grief, Durin God's Grief, rather, and Elenai. Uh, the Durandin line is quite detailed in the world of Ice and Fire. There's like, seriously, no exaggeration, like 30 different named Durandins. Uh, so that's neat because it's, it's unusual for such an ancient period. We're talking about Durans who lived and allied with the children of the forest. So that's a really long time ago, or at least during a time that's not well understood or known. So I, to be clear, this is my understanding of things, is that since the werewood is destroyed, Bran cannot look at things through that werewood because it's destroyed. It's, but, but that's my understanding. Is there any... I'm curious if anyone interprets it differently as though because there was a werewood there that if he's looking into the past that he can look in the past there. I think he can still see the past there because okay. event, but but maybe not right away because the way it's described Not the is present that, there most clearly, but yeah. I wasn't sure if he could see the past there. Because it's said that Bran eventually won't need the trees to to for seeing things. So if like mm-hmm. so that implies that the weather the tree is there or not, it will eventually not matter because yeah. the powers will be great enough to overcome that. Cool. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so uh, there's a lot of mixed themes here. This, the, the idea that this character during God's grief was so stubborn that he kept going to war with the gods is quite familiar to Stannis' own story. Uh, going to war with the gods, well, he might be going to war with the cold gods in the north. Um, and certainly the stubbornness described by Storm's End in this this massive castle and this guy just refusing to give up. That sounds like Stannis. And, you know, he is the, the important Baratheon of the batch. Like he's the third one to, he's the one to emerge from the, the dust of his two brothers, younger and older, the ones with bigger armies and more fame. But clearly he's the one that, that truly matters in terms of the story going forward. Not that the others aren't important, but obviously Stannis is the one that sticks around and, and keeps the story moving. Now, relating this to Bran the Builder, that's really cool. Bran the Builder would know things about standing up to the gods and especially about big walls arrayed against a force of nature. The description of this thing, it's crazy. Let's do it. Let's, let's, let's read it. Yet Storm's End endured through centuries and tens of centuries, a castle like no other. Its great curtain wall was a hundred feet high, unbroken by arrow slit or postern, everywhere rounded, curving, smooth. Its stones fit so cunningly together that nowhere was crevice nor angle nor gap by which the wind might enter. That wall was said to be 40 feet thick at its narrowest and near 80 on the seaward face, a double course of stones with an inner core of sand and rubble. Within that mighty bulwark, the kitchens and stables and yards sheltered safe from wind and wave. Of towers, there was but one, a colossal drum tower, windowless where it faced the sea, so large that it was granary and barracks and feast hall and lord's dwelling, all in one, crowned by massive battlements that made it look from afar like a spiked fist atop an upthrust arm. So uh, before I get into those details, real quick, a comment that I was, I was browsing the chat while Shay was reading that, and I see a good comment from Brendan the Bloodlion, who says, Ned won the siege bloodlessly, which I think foreshadows Stannis winning Renly's army. Also, well, not quite bloodlessly, but almost bloodlessly. Only one person's blood. 
and maybe you know maybe one one or two guardsmen who fight Brienne afterwards. But that's a good catch. Uh, so yeah, this castle is really interesting. It's very unique, it, not just because of its age and it's in, it's it's standing up against weather, kind of in a loose parallel to the wall, made deeper by the connection to Bran the Builder, but just. 80 feet thick near the seaward face and 100 feet tall. That is so big. It's massive. And this is not a, a pretty castle. This is a castle built for functionality. Uh, the one thick tower doesn't have a lot of ornamentation. Of course, it couldn't because one of the descri- one of the important features here is not having things for wind to kind of grab hold of, not having uh, places for wind to have to get purchased because they would eventually it would just tear them down eventually. And uh, it might tear down parts of the wall with it. So you don't want any of that. You want it to be smooth. And George emphasizes the word smooth in the quote when it's written. Smooth is in italics. So Catelyn is, is, is herself is emphasizing that when looking at it. And also windowless. Windowless where it faces the sea, which, by the way, is part of how Davos is able to sneak up on it. La- uh, not later, <laughs> but many years ago. <laughs> so it's it's particularly interesting in that sense. And I love thinking about this, this connection to Bran and the Builder and how maybe that is a, a connection to Bran and being king later. Yeah, I mean, we have as well, obviously, the ever, people know the theories that exist. Uh, we're not subscribers to it, but the idea that our Bran is Bran the Builder or some connection to it. But right there in that quote, you can most clearly see the fodder for it, which is, Others claim that a small boy told him what he must do, a boy who would grow to be Bran the Builder, which yeah. is a weird line, like that a small boy would be able to communicate such information. But anyways, I think it's worth mentioning. I don't put any stock in that very much at all. Right on. Um, but regardless, a small boy can't teach you how to build a castle. <laughs> that is true. So... Storm's End too. I want to talk about the religion here. Something really interesting is how is is all the different mixing of of, of religious uh, beliefs here. You have this Durin's God's grief fighting against the quote Storm God, which is you know that is that the same Storm God that the Ironborn now worship? Because we know that they're back in the day, like before even the first men worshipped the Werewoods and the old gods, they worshipped like these different nature gods. There's a sky god. Uh, you know, some of these worships were, these were more common, in fact, on islands. Some of these islands never really adopted the first men worship of the old, of the werewoods, which is probably in part because a lot of these islands didn't have werewoods on them. And also because they're just more closed societies where they have less traffic with the mainland and there's less influence from these more mainstream beliefs. So you have these super ancient gods that are vaguely still a part of Westeros, you have maybe a connection to the Ironborn Storm God through that. You have Durin, one of the Durins, allying with the Children of the Forest against the Andals. That's a piece of ancient history that's probably a lot of y'all weren't aware of. Uh, then we have uh, a Durin taking on the Seven, becoming, you know, converting to the Seven. Now we have Stannis converting them to R'hllor. <laughs> so this is, it's like... So much of this is is associated with Storm's End directly. I think that's really neat. And you wonder if like the Storm's End, the, the nature, the name of the castle says so much about man versus nature, humankind versus nature, and uh, as well as, of course, clever lines by Sir Courtney Penrose later when he says, pray recall, my lord, the name of this castle. 
Joe Buckley points out that Renly stating a man should always eat a peach because winter is coming. Well, that's uh, that connects pretty well to what we said last week about winter is coming to also mean enjoy summer and life and appreciate what you have. Even Dagmer Clefjaw weighs in on a similar theme here with with Theon in, in, in a chapter we'll deal with next week when he says, we're victorious, but you're not smiling. The living should smile because the dead cannot. And Dagmer's reaver wisdom is, is, is surprisingly on point there. Renly is confident the whole realm doesn't want Stannis as king, but that proves kind of wrong, as we'll see in a couple chapters after, after Renly's death when quite a few people follow him. And uh, even we even hear some small folk yelling for Stannis uh, in King's Landing during these riots. And of course, there's the later, there's the antler men, the one who, who, intend, who try to defect to Stannis from Joffrey inside King's Landing. So Renly was uh, a bit wrong. He wasn't wrong that people seemed to prefer him, but he was overstating Stannis' unpopularity. Also a great catch by uh, Joe Buckley, this little quote, no one lifts a sword to defend it but my son. From Catelyn, of course, she's thinking of Rob defending the realm. Stannis' whole arc is going to turn on this very point when he realizes, thanks to Davos, that he needs to not take the throne to save the realm. He needs to save the throne or save the realm to take the throne. And uh, so that's poignantly placed here in this chapter near Stannis. Uh, uh, So it's an ideal he's going to eventually uh, take on for himself. Comment from Christine David. It compares to Tyrion's mountain clansmen. That's obviously talking about Tywin's monsters. Yes, yes. Very, very good point. I did not make that connection, and that's actually pretty straightforward now that you mentioned it. Well, maybe not straightforward, but once you see it, the connection is doesn't need explana- explanation. You're like, oh, yeah, that fits really well. Tyrion's clansmen aren't nearly as brutal and savage as Tywin, and that is something even Tywin points out. He says, if, if, you, if your men don't, aren't disciplined, it's the fault of the commander. <laughs> And so Tywin was really taking a dig at himself because his men are incredibly brutal and unruly and and savage. Tyrion's wildlings behave far better than Tywin's do. He can trust, you know, Shaga and even Timit to basically follow orders and to not um, go around. We don't hear about Timit and Shaga going around, you know, raping people or or even, you know, they like Shaga... Shimmick Sha- kills a guy who cheats at dice, but Shaga only shags people consensually. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're, they're the kind of wildlings we can all agree with. <laughs> so that's a really good catch. Uh, Jaded Redhead points out the uh, mirrors this comment as well and, and expresses admiration for that catch. Very good. A huge point that we know now that we didn't know slash know more about now is that how big a parallel Stannis is to Danny. It's something that becomes far more clear later in the series. And by the end of the show, it becomes massively clear because we haven't reached some of the parallels in the books yet, some of which I'm pretty sure we will have that match the show. In the next chapter, we're going to go really deep with some of those parallels. But to help set that up, Danny's parlay with the slavers. Think about that. How she never really took them seriously in terms of honoring a bargain because slavers don't deserve to be treated with honor. That's not how far off from how Stannis sees Renly. He sees Renly as a traitor, and you don't owe honor to a traitor. You don't owe, you know, consideration to a traitor. You kill them. Uh, and in both cases, when Danny pulls a fast one on the slavers, it results in her basically taking an army from them 
And, and that's what Stannis does here. He kills Renly and takes Renly's army. Hmm. Of course, there's way more Danny Stannis parallels, uh, and we'll hit them as they come. But this is the first really strong batch of ones that I hadn't really thought about before. And of course, there'll be more to come. Another comment from Danny Buck. Isn't it interesting how Brienne is surrounded by reflections? Renly is shiny bronze, a mirror of Robert in his prime, followed by Gendry. Catelyn becomes her own as Lady Stoneheart. Jamie is mirrored by Hyle Hunt, who is Jamie Ritt Small, sardonic. Uh, he's a knightly image of and, and father of bastard and potential romantic figure. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. This is where it starts, where her mirror is shattered by a shade. Yeah, well said, Danny. That is very true. And of course, the shade is coming two chapters from now. In Catelyn 4, in between, we have a Sansa chapter. Spirited discussion on our Facebook group, uh, including Lady Gwen, led by Nina, about Renly knowing uh, whether or not Renly knew about the incest. The overwhelming majority of us believe that, yes, he did, despite his seeming to pretend otherwise. It's hard to not know about the incest when you lived at court. Even though Renly, to be fair, didn't live at court nearly as long as some of these other people. He was there, and it was kind of an open secret. So, yeah. We don't need to get into all the details of why, but it seems pretty clear. If you do want to know, well, head over to our Facebook group and check out the thread. Some people want to know why Renly's army was so large in the first place. It's a confluence of factors. First of all, he was Lord of Storm's End instead of Stannis, so they knew him better. He had this, this more direct personal relationship with the vassals of Storm's End, and Storm's End has way more manpower than the vassals of Dragonstone, which is where Stannis was. Not only that, but Stannis is, not only does Renly have all this up-close and personal relationship with people, Stannis didn't. Not only is Stannis not good at up-close and personal relationships, but he didn't have the opportunity to have them because he spent so much time on Dragonstone and people, he wasn't a very nice guy. He didn't make a lot of friends, but also it's scheming. The Tyrells schemed with Renly to replace uh, Cersei with Marjorie and then pivoted to Marjorie Renly. So of course the Tyrells are the biggest part of this uh, other than the Renly-Stannis relationship and the Storm's End vassals. Because so much of Renly's army is Tyrell uh, supported slash enforced slash ruled. And that is, they are, of course, super ambitious here, even though their ambition hasn't truly been explained or put on screen yet. We all are very aware of it. We know that Olena is working things in the background already, even though I don't even think she's been mentioned yet. That's it. For Catelyn three, now Sansa three. King Rob the socks socks, damn it. <laughs> King Rob the sauce boss of Ox Cross, aka the one where Tyrion rescues Sansa. Hey, you know I make a, a tongue twister. It's only fitting that I occasionally fall for will my you, own. Will you do twisters. it as a tongue twister now and say it? Tongue twister, tongue twister. Tongue well, you no, know, you say it like three times fast. The sauce boss of Ox Cross. The sauce boss of Ox Cross. The sauce boss of Ox Cross. Okay. That's not too bad. <laughs> no, I should have said ten times. Ten times. That would take too long. <laughs> <laughs> so the reason I call it the sauce boss of Ox Cross is because Tyrion says to Sansa when Sansa asks, oh, "Didn't weren't there like an army of wargs or wasn't there sorcery involved?" and and Sansa Tyrion's like, "Bah, sorcery is the sauce fools spoon over, uh, you know, to hide their own failure, to hide the flavor of their own failure." So, hence the word sauce boss. So on the heels of Catelyn 3, a chapter where the POV is amidst a huge number of knights, the best of whom is not one, the situation for Santa is similar, but on a smaller scale. Quote, The longer you keep him waiting, the worse it will go for you, Sandor Clegane warned her. So right there, we have this character who is sort of the parallel to Brienne in Santa's arc, which is Sandor Clegane, the knightly person who is not a knight. Now think back on where Sansa began and where she is now. We did that for uh, Lancel earlier. 
and think about this. And I don't mean where Sansa is now in terms of the story, like in A Dance with Dragons. I mean where she is now, where we are in Clash of Kings versus where she started. She started off dreaming of princes and, and castles and pageantry and all these things. Now she's being beaten regularly by her prince. Well, now he's king. Same difference. So this is a small conundrum, something that comes back later when Sandor is, is dying and asking Arya for mercy, which is that we actually get a, a time where Joffrey tells the Hound to hit Sansa. But Dantos interrupts. And then, Sans- and then Sandor himself interrupts and says, enough, because, of course, Dantos hitting Sansa with a melon does not assuage Joffrey's uh, lust for brutality. And he pivots to having uh, Marin and Boros do the job. Which reminds us that as bad as Marin and Boros are, Joffrey is worse. Oof. Uh, so this is hard because, you know, we talk about how George, for the most part, compared to the show, not for the most part compared to other authors, he keeps some of the worst, worst torture, some of the worst brutalities. There's plenty that are on screen, but a lot of them are off screen. But this is some, some of Sansa's close-up treatment. is She gets hit so many times by the flat of, of, of Boros's sword that she loses count. Ugh. And then she's, she carries the pain around later. It's hard for her to walk. That's really hard to read about. I mean, Arya and Sansa's chapters are so rough these days because of all the brutal things they're seeing. And we have to feel it, it's part of tugging at the reader's heartstrings, having these not just young characters, but young girls having to witness all this stuff. Because whether or not we want to admit it, a lot of us are going to feel more sympathy for a young girl than a young boy because of how we've been, because of our own society and how we've been taught. Intellectually, I don't see a little girl as any different than a little boy in terms of rights and opportunities and all that. But in terms of how society starts, tells us that young girls are more in need of protection, it kind of weighs on our subconscious a little bit when we see these, you know, see a girl brutalized like this. Yeah, you know, when you think about it, it's interesting. Sansa has a lot more, you know, she has physical abuse heaped on her, whereas Arya's viewing it's trauma. terrible yeah. it's trauma and trauma for both of them. But like Sansa is the one that is being physically abused. Arya actually doesn't have really much of that at all. Yeah. Just the brief, you know, I mean, it's still abuse, but it's not like this huge beating where multiple grown men are just beating her. Yeah. She suffers like before Harrenhal, she suffered in like, in terms of like starvation and all that, but she made it through that. I mean, I think Sansa would probably rather eat worms than to be beaten. You yeah, know? So that's yeah. not, that's not, yeah, that's not yeah, true. But it's Arya, bad, if she were being beaten like those men, just the same thing we've talked about all these times that, it yeah. would, you know, she wouldn't be long for the world. She would fight too much. Yeah. Same thing Catelyn is, is wondering about yeah. a little bit later when she wonders why Arya isn't at court in King's Landing. Like, well, maybe they just didn't want her to embarrass anyone, but maybe yeah. that she's so embarrassing that they killed her. Yeah. <laughs> The second big part of this chapter, after Tyrion kind of interrupts Sansa's getting brutalized, is another example of why we can't have too many battles on screen, right? (laughs) But it would also be unrealistic to have a medieval-style campaign without a series of battles. So you have to have balance. In other words, you have to have a lot of battles because that's just the nature of things. But you don't want to just get bogged down in showing battle after battle because there's at some point there's just not enough to differentiate them. Certain battles like the Whispering Wood and Blackwater are just so unique, they're really interesting. Oxcross has some unique things about it, but it's not uh, the battle itself isn't so isn't as significant as what it means. And I think it's nice to to hear it as rumor. 
Yeah, because then there's some, yeah, you're right. It is nice. Like you get to hear the the whole bit of them talking about army of wargs and all the way the rumor spins it in a way that makes the Lannisters look less bad. It makes Rob, instead of pinning Rob as this amazing commander, they're like denigrating him for using tricks and sorcery, which is Tyrion is like, nah, <laughs> that's exactly what they're doing. He's like, nah, they're just trying to down downplay their own failure here. Rob won. And that's simple as it is. Uh, but this of all the times that we've thought about whether Rob could have been a POV, and I don't do a lot of what ifs. It's, it's just, you know, we have enough to cover without what ifs. But this one is worth a little bit of exploration because George has specifically said he somewhat wishes he made Rob a POV. And this is a perfect example of when it would have been really valuable. Uh, for one thing, if this chapter were Rob sneaking up, you know, us seeing through Rob's point of view, his seeing through Grey Wind's eyes as he sneaks around the, 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 the towers and as we see, well, let's listen to the quote from Lancel. Using some vile sorcery, your brother fell upon Sir Stafford Lannister with an army of wargs, not three days ride from Lannister. Thousands of good men were, butch- were butchered as they slept without the chance to lift sword. After the slaughter, the Northmen feasted on the flesh of the slain. <laughs> as an aside, just think about how these stories will continue. Think about like what the phrase say at the, at the uh, merman's court about, <laughs> then they feasted on the sle- flesh of the slain. The Northmen turned into a wolf. And it's just like the lies about Rob get, continue to get crazy. And even after he's dead. But here's uh, Tyrion's rational explanation. The Northmen crept into my uncle's camp and cut his horse lines, and Lord Stark sent his wolf among them. Even war-trained destriers went mad. Knights were trampled to death in their pavilions, and the rabble woke in terror and fled, casting aside their weapons to run the faster. Sir Stafford was slain as he chased after a horse. Lord Rickard Carstark drove a lance through his chest. Sir Rupert Rupert Brax is also dead, along with Sir Lyman Vickery, Lord Craycall, and Lord Jast. Half a hundred more have been taken captive, including Jast's sons and my nephew, Martin Lannister. Those who survived are spreading wild tales and swearing that the old gods of the North march with your brother. Yeah, so that's, so that's Tyrion is explaining where the rumors come from. He's like, they're spreading tales about their failure. Real quick, yeah. I never noticed that he says Lord Stark. Oh, yeah. He keeps up the party (laughs) line. Yeah, not king. (laughs) He won't say it. Like, I'm not calling him king. So the reason, and this is why it strikes me, this would be an amazing, even if it was just a one-time thing to have Rob's POV, is we would see Grey Wind doing all these things. We'd see Grey Wind triggering these war-trained destriers going mad. We'd see these knights getting trampled to death in their pavilions. We would see Lord Karstark driving a lance through Sir Stafford Lannister's chest. We would see things that are going to matter later when direwolves are going to be a bigger part of the story. We're going to see the impact of a direwolf in battle. That would be a really nice thing for us to see up front. Uh, that it would also be really cool for us to see just the way this battle plays out in terms of showing things happening at night. You know, night battles are kind of interesting. So there's a lot this, this would do. But of course, again, I don't want to get too bogged down in what if, but you can see when George says he somewhat regrets not making Rob a POV, I think this is one of the, cha- this is my pet theory that this is one of the chapters that he would have given to Rob instead of Sansa. And well, <laughs> another th- nice thing about that is that we wouldn't have had, we would have one less chapter of Sansa getting brutalized. Hmm. But uh, maybe he would have just done both. Tyrion explains it all really well. 
And another theory that this leads me to is that it's widely believed the Winds of Winter prologue is going to uh, include Nymeria, the wolf, if not Blackfish and the, and the Brotherhood Without Banners, maybe both. And so we might see this, like, firsthand from some prologue characters for uh, POV, which could be a lot of possibilities for who that could be, seeing what it's like to have a dire wolf come at you, which we haven't really seen in battle. That's only been seen from a distance and described. It hasn't been, like, prominently on screen. Uh, it's funny, we think about the show not giving us much of that. Well, really, the books haven't either. <laughs> We've seen lots of dire wolf action, but not in set-piece battles. It's, 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 we have seen only a little bit. Uh, so another thing that comes from this is that Ryman the Rhymer comes up a, uh, with a song over this battle. It's called Wolf in the Night. And we'll hear people singing Wolf in the Night uh, when Catelyn returns to River Run after uh, Renly's death. So when Sansa lies about uh, Joffrey and says, oh, he's my, you know, I, I love him with all my heart and I pray for his, you know, safety and all that, Tyrion laughs and compliments her on the lie, which is an interesting uh, connection to the Hound, who had said her lies were not so believable. So either Tyrion just being nice and polite about it, which is entirely possible, or she's getting more sincere. She's getting better at lying, which is what I think. I think she's getting better at lying, and that's shown in some of these other ways where she's learning how to tell people what they want to hear. She's learning, like, the art of, of deception. And, of course, she's learning how to word it in very clever ways to, to have open-ended meanings. Like, here's a perfect example, this quote here. I pray for end to the fighting. Yeah, right? That's, of course. True. I she pray does. for it. She does. Yeah, she does. <laughs> she also prays that the fighting ends with Rob victorious, and <laughs> she thinks, Rob will kill you all, and that's the <laughs> she doesn't, she left that part unsaid, but technically she is praying for an end to the fighting. So that's really clever. Good job by George making her, uh, slowly bringing her along as a politician, because that's, that's exactly the kind of someone... Uh, like a politician would get in front of the cameras and say, I pray for an end to the fighting. You know, it's just like, that's the kind of thing. Like, yeah, of course you do. It's like, no, do you, are you pro or anti-gun control? That doesn't yeah. answer anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think as Americans, we have many choices facing us. Like, just answer the question. <laughs> <laughs> and Tyrion uh, even... Uh, catches us he refer he he helps us know what's going on by saying perhaps you are wiser than i knew by uh reminding us that this is part of sansa's growth here uh, a couple notes from joe buckley he uh points out that sansa had to wait back in the tower of the hand when ned was uh captured and then executed and here and then she notes uh then he notes that how another piece of thing another thing hanging over her not just the brutality is that a lot of people like cersei are worried that that Jamie will be killed. Uh, and Sansa has a different worry, though. If Jamie is killed, then that is bad news for her because they may retaliate by killing Sansa. So she's worried that if, that if Jamie dies, they'll kill her. And uh, that no one really mentions that to her, but it's, it makes sense that it would, she would be in her head and that she would be thinking about that as just yet another thing weighing down on her, which is motivating her to, to flee. Tyrex wedding feast is the thing that kicks off the beginning of the unrest. And then of course, uh, we're going to have riots pretty soon. And this is a, a set a part of the setup for that. Um, in part because starving people don't like hearing that rich people are feasting and you can't, uh, you can't hard. It's hard to not agree with them. Like, yeah, I would be pretty pissed off if I had literally no food and a hundred, a few hundred feet away, people were, you know, eating so much that they were throwing most of it away. 
fair or not, it would piss me off. And that's the point. And that's where the that's part of where the riots come from. Let's see here. A few comments from y'all and a few other random thoughts. Crossbow scenes were common in the show um, for Joffrey. And uh, that's kind of mirrored here by uh, several stories of Joffrey shooting people, commoners and such. Uh, so that's kind of comparable, I suppose. But we have this really unpleasant crossbow-related foreshadowing here. Quote, A yellow cat was dying on the ground, mewing piteously, a crossbow quarrel through its ribs. Sansa stepped around it, feeling ill. I'm sorry we made you read that one, Shay. I know, it's so sad. I grabbed it. Yeah. Anyways. But if you hadn't, I would have. (laughs) Very very clearly, it makes you think of Tywin. Yeah, it's a yellow cat dying on the ground with a crossbow bolt through it. And it's not just the slow death of Tywin's legacy, but just the actual moment of Tywin's death. And uh, yeah, triggered by Joff's death, of course, is going to cause other, you know, which is Tywin's death. Is triggered by Joff's death, I mean. I don't think I was clear on that. Um, And which, like Tyrion, Sansa will be implicated in uh, Joff's death. So... This kicks off a lot of things, um, this little moment that's easy to just kind of close your eyes and read past. Be like, oh, I don't want to think about this cat. Um, but it is not just random brutality. It, is, uh, it has meaning. This might be the first time we get the description of Tyrion's hand necklace. We definitely hear of him wearing it before, but I don't think it's described as interlocking hands. Not that that's super, super important, but well, of course... It's relevant, it, I mean, in the show, matter. we're used to the hand pin. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, he, it, well, I, I once pointed out, too, that it's interesting to see the type of hand, like the, the character of the hand and what they believe their pin should look like. Like, Ned wears the simple simple silver pin. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's regal, but not gaudy. Whereas Tyrion and Tywin wear the hand, like the golden hands, which is a big, impressive, but kind of over-the-top uh, symbol. Whereas Bloodraven wore, like, a simple black iron pin. Mm. You know, with like a simple black hand. Yeah. So you got these kind of variety of... of but but what, we, what about themselves. the necklace? What about the necklace? What about this hand? The hand Well, that's necklace. what I'm saying. That's the one. That's what I'm saying. The Tywin and, and Tyrion yeah. have the, the ostentatious one. Well, I just meant in the show. I thought you were referring to the differences within the show. Because oh, no, they no, all had pins in the show. Yeah. Well, uh, yeah, you're right. It's not the hand necklace that Tyrion strangles Shay with in the show, is it? Yeah, no. It's just some necklace. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. Not, yeah, yeah. You're right. That's a good point. I actually kind of forgot about that. So good catch. You, here's another uh, look. I think this is a quote that you grabbed here. Yeah. Some semblance of decency. Yeah. Loitering stable hands eyed her insolently, but Sir Horace Redwine averted his gaze as she passed, and his brother Hobber pretended not to see her. Obviously, they're not the best, you know, teens or whatever they are, you know, the Redwine twins, but at least they have some decency enough to be like, this is not, this is not a good thing we're doing. Yeah, we're part of. I agree that they have no ability to stop it, but they are not. They're not. They're not enjoying it. They're not. Uh, they, 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 that's the only thing they can do. Yeah, they, they averting your gaze. Yeah, that's they, really all you can do. Yeah, they can't do anything to stop it. Like you could say, oh, well, they're cowardly. Well, all they would be doing is signing their death warrant. Yeah, or they getting Joffrey anything. to bring his attention to them. Yeah, you know, which like, is them potentially dying or at least being tortured or yeah. something. So they really can't do anything. It's not cowardly. It's not brave. It's just. Yeah. It's just kind of helpless. Which yeah, is, which is basically better, Sansa's position. Yeah, whereas the stable hands eyeing her insolently, they feel like they're punching up, like, oh, mm-hmm. this poor little rich girl. Yeah, it's uh, it's some schadenfreude there. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, speaking of Horace and, and uh, Hobber, one of them also... Or, or, or horror and slobber. Horror and slobber. One of them is also... Uh, um, behaves reasonably well and bravely during the riot. I think the, I think by then the other one has been sent home. Um, Because they get split up. Anyway, that's a great catch by you. Um, 
And there's this theme, this recurring theme that uh, even Tywin, though he's a hypocrite about it, says wanton brutality. Well, Tywin doesn't say this. This is this is Tyrion's quote. Wanton brutality is no way to win your people's love or your queen's. Fear is better than love, mother says. Joffrey pointed at Sansa. She fears me. Well, yeah, she yeah. does. That's true. <laughs> yeah, but... Of course, Tyrion goes on to be like, well, it's easy to have a 12-year-old girl fear you. I don't think Stannis and Renly fear you. Yeah, because that's a great, yeah, that is a great comeback. He's like, yeah, talk to me when you've scared your enemies and not 12-year-old girls that are unarmed. I mean, yeah, that's the, who, who cares that she's afraid of you? Like, gr- great job, Joffrey. <laughs> well done. But yeah, but it's a it's a common theme that the the ways to rule it's something that the fear and love dichotomy is thing that's going to continue to really really matter. It's going to matter with Stannis. It's going to matter with Daenerys and with Tyrion. And it's going to matter with Tyrion. They do not love him. They fear him. Uh, and of course, it's other characters from history like Bloodraven and uh, even characters like Bran, who no one they don't they don't really fear him. And they don't necess- some of them love him, but there's also pity. So there's like these other emotions. Of pity is is uh, death to fear. You know? I think so if he's king, big... I, think, I think if he's king and he's all knowing, basically, they'd fear him. Oh yeah, at that point they'll fear him. But at this point, they're like he's he's nothing. They don't they don't worry about him at all. And you know, we quoted the "perhaps you were wiser than I knew" bit from um, from earlier. But uh, there's another interpretation here. Uh, if you if we read the full quote, I am no stranger to nightmares, Sansa. Perhaps you were wiser than I knew. Yeah, that is because his nightmares are very are are about Taisha. That is the one thing that he mostly is haunted by because his dragon dreams don't really happen anymore. And those were maybe not nightmares in the first place. They were just, you know, dreams of fire and things like that. It's not clear whether he thought of those as nightmares. I don't think they were. But that's the only other thing I can even think of that that sounds like a nightmare that Tyrion has. So that is uh, the slow buildup of the Taisha arc for for Tyrion here even though this is Sansa's chapter. Nina has a, a good take here. Sandor literally tosses this, the cloak at Sansa when she's uh, you know, naked, and, it's San- and Sansa covers herself with it. It's so symbolic of Sandor's utter disdain for knighthood. The white cloak of the Kingsguard is supposed to be the ultimate prize for any Westerosi knight, the status symbol that signifies the wearer as one of the seven finest knights in the kingdom. And this is a great point for her, too. To, uh, I'm going to add to this point that she's making, because... In the riot scene, not long from now, it's a, they make a deal out of, should we wear our cloaks? The cloaks are pissing people off right now, et cetera. So it is uh, referred to in many different ways as a symbol. And I, I, I agree with Nina that it's a, it is a status symbol, especially among knights and people who respect knighthood, which is most of Westeros. But he's just, just like, to him, it's just a garment. It's just like, oh, I'm going to, you know, it's just a piece of cloth, which I think nearly all of us, if not all of us would agree with. Yeah, it's just a cloak and you've got a, a naked bleeding girl here. Yeah. You toss her the cloak, but he's the only one here that would. Like, not even like Horus, like Horror or Hobber could have maybe tossed their cloak to her. That would have been one way of getting involved that's not necessarily going to make Joffrey mad, but still. I think they might have, you know, gotten him back. Whereas Sandor is one of the only people, I think, that could have pulled that off. And he's one of the people that is actually closest to get it to her. Yeah, and it's just you know sandor is a more important character so giving yeah. him that thing as far as a yeah. writing perspective it just makes Instead sense one of those red wine twins. Yeah. little did we know they're really going to come to prominence in the winds of winter <laughs> we mentioned that Arya and sansa were thinking of each other uh, in this in these two pairs in these pairs of chapters in fact sansa not only thinks of Arya, but she finds herself in Arya's old room that's mm. where she's being uh, she's staying these days 
All right, I believe that covers it for Sansa. Of course, uh, real quick before we move on, I just wanted to highlight something I don't think we actually mentioned, which is Sansa gives all these lies and excuses. I mean, she thinks about her, you know, living there in the Tower of the Hand where all her father's men were killed, and she's thinking, Arya there. But of course, the reason she doesn't want to be there is Sir Danto. She she wants to be saved, and she can't be there. Yeah, you're right. I just wanted to highlight. Make sure that's clear. Yeah, Yeah, good job. Okay. Catelyn for the one where what a shadow that's what aka the gang switches Baratheons the bottom lines in this scene are extremely memorable the death of Renly by Shadowbane Stannis getting most of his army Cat and Brienne running off and forging a strong relationship uh, which later leads to Brienne running off by herself and being an important POV character quote It was full dark before they found the village. She spends all night in prayer asking gods who have never shown any signs for protection. And her discomfort is reflected here, though. Uh, The Sept itself is a poor place with visible damage to the gods, and it kind of makes her a little uneasy. And there's more to that. Quote. She knelt before the smith who fixed things that were broken and asked that he give her sweet Bran his protection. She went to the maid and beseeched her to lend her courage to Arya and Sansa to guard them in their innocence. To the father, she prayed for justice, the strength to seek it, and the the wisdom to know it. And she asked the warrior to keep Rob strong and shield him in his battles. Lastly, she turned to the crone, whose statues often showed her with a lamp in one hand. Guide me, wise lady, she prayed. Show me the path I must walk, and do not let me stumble in the dark places that lie ahead. So... Bran, let's let's parse that out. Uh, Bran gets his protection from elsewhere. The gods are on to him, all right, but not the Smith. It's the old gods. Arya and Sansa are getting stronger, but their innocence, definitely not. No one is guarding their innocence. I mean, Sansa was literally just stripped in front of a bunch of dudes uh, and beaten. Um, but she is uh, at least, you know, learning and uh, making her way the best she can. Rob does not stay strong. Uh, he does in battle, but he gets hurt and when hurt it's when he has his weakest moment where he marries jane and screws up his fray alliance uh interestingly she doesn't pray for rickon here but whatever (laughs) uh here's another quote that is uh kind of tears at the heartstrings but also has some deeper meaning did your old gods ever answer you ned she wondered when you knelt before your heart tree did they hear you So she's wondering about that. And, well, we know the answer seems to be yes. When uh, in A Dance with Dragons, Bran goes to the past and sees his father praying to the heart tree and can hear him. And in fact, he almost, it seems to be that Ned hears him. But that's a whole nother, that's a different point. It's interesting, but we're focused on, did the old, did the heart tree hear him? And that's a distinct yes. I mean, we don't even need that quote to, to prove it, but that's, Probably the best proof we have. Bran actually in his POV being inside the tree and hearing Ned. Uh, so Catelyn's prayers don't actually amount to anything, but they do tell us a lot. And she does see the results of someone else's fervent prayers not too long after this. If that's if praying is what you can call the birthing of a shadow baby, maybe praying isn't the right word, but it's certainly related to uh, the gods and supernatural powers. So while Cat is praying... Mel and Stannis are doing dark sex magic or whatever. (laughs) So again, it's what's not shown that is really important here for us to take take note of. 
So, uh, and of course, and I call it dark sex magic because it does seem to, there does seem to be some death paying for life here uh, because, or life paying for death. Stannis seems to get older because, uh, after this and then even more older after he sends a second shadow baby after Sir Courtney Penrose. Davos specifically notes it and Stannis starts having nightmares uh, after this scene, yet he continues to deny his, his role in it. Even Melisandre denies her role in it to Davos when he's smuggling her uh, into Storm's End or outside of Storm's End. So that's a huge thing that we're going to talk more about later when we get into Davos and Stannis's uh, role in all this and how, and Melisandre and how it impacts that plot line. Here we're going to be a little more focused on Catelyn and Brienne and the armies and logistics, but just keep in mind that the, the topics of personal responsibility, ethics, and, and who's responsible well, who swung the sword, things like that are going to be a big part of Stannis and Davos and Melisandre going forward. Human sacrifice, all that. It's a big, big, interesting conundrum. But Catelyn and Brienne's side of this is super interesting too. Catelyn, this, this really reminds me of Mary Mazdur because Catelyn is sort of a Mary Mazdur in that she thinks of herself as dead because Ned is gone. Like, i.e., it's the same or at least similar concept to what is life worth when all else is gone. Now, Catelyn has her kids, so she's really not, she wasn't, she didn't truly lose everything like Mary Mazdur, but the concept is very familiar, very similar, not worded the same way. I think it's pretty easy to miss this parallel, but Catelyn is also sad for other reasons. She's thinking about how her father was also in a similar state, how he changed forever when her mother died and how that also applies to someone like Tywin, who is a, you know, as much as he is a monster, he was apparently much less of a monster before Joanna died. And maybe he was decent before Joanna? Probably not. He still did the Reigns of Castamere and all that. But maybe he wasn't so quick to go hiring brutal sellswords and, and wouldn't have, maybe Joanna wouldn't have been okay with him torching the Riverlands. Who knows? Maybe she would be even more gung-ho about it. Yeah, the other side of the possibility is that Joanna was even worse than Tywin. That's, yeah. that's something that's, I don't know if it's likely, but I, I don't think she possible. was worse, but I do like the idea that they were on similar pages. Yeah, maybe she was brutal. Maybe she was like, yeah, get him. Yeah. <laughs> maybe that's where Cersei gets it from. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, she clearly got some of it from her father, but yes. maybe it was like a dual <laughs> kind of... <laughs> Uh, so not just Danny's scene with Miri Mazdor in terms of the life, uh, you know, what is life worth when all else is gone, but there is a lot of parallels here to Renly's death and the Miri Mazdor scene. I mean, you have warriors sworn to a fallen ruler seeking to avenge that death against a woman with magic heavily involved. Uh, you know, Brienne is blamed for the magic. She's not responsible for it, but Kat and Brienne both get blamed for Renly's death. Mary Mazdor uh, is, is summoning shadows. Of course, that parallel doesn't need explaining. This death of a glorious ruler with an enormous army. Compare Khal Drogo's massive Kalsar to Renly's huge army. Compare the Blood Riders dying outside Miri's tent to the Rainbow Guard falling inside Renly's. Well, not during this scene, but when Loras arrives and sees the body of his king. We even have the issue in both cases of the body being important. Loras runs off with Renly's body. And that's important because Courtney Penrose refuses to believe he's dead until seeing the body. Meanwhile, Danny does stuff with Kyle Drogo's body. Speaking of bodies and issues, eh, I'm getting too deep with the puns. It's stunning to me that the magic of R'hllor, which 
she first witnessed here in this tent taking a life away is the same supernatural force that's going to keep Lady Stoneheart walking and talking and seeking revenge. And unfortunately, she thinks Brienne is deserving of some of that revenge. That's We'll get to that when we come there, but it, it deserves a mention here because we all know Brienne is not deserving of that revenge, nor is she deserving of the revenge here that someone like Loras thinks she's deserving of. Really, Loras should be angry at Stannis, who Brienne is angry at, which correctly, because she knows who did it. Brienne swears to kill Stannis for this. And maybe she should be swearing to kill Melisandre. Maybe she should be swearing to kill them both. But in what becomes a never-ending pattern of evidence here, Brienne proves more worthy than any of the other knights of being a knight. And as I'm showing in this chapter, she's also more like a blood rider, or, you know, than blood riders swear to kill whoever killed their call. And in general, this is a more apt comparison to the Rainbow Guard and the Kingsguard. Uh, Loras, also like a blood rider, comes in and he's like, what? You didn't stop the death of our king, nor did you avenge it, nor are you even trying. You're just sitting here. So that was part of why he got so mad. Of course, the main reason is he's sad about Renly's death. But it's this ethos from these like ultra-loyal bodyguard types, whether Rainbow Guard, Kingsguard, or Blood Rider, that's all very familiar here, wrapped up in this incredible scene. So, example, Dothraki would cut their hair when defeated. Sir Courtney Penrose heaps shame on Guyard the Green and Lord Bryce the Orange for continuing to wear their colored cloaks. He's like, if I had a cloak like that, I'd be ashamed to wear it. You, that's the cloak of, that your king gave you to defend him, and he's dead. How are you wearing that? It's the same concept with cutting your hair. It's kind of like uh, revealing your defeat, being, you know, like owning the fact that you lost, not trying to hide the fact that you lost. Just being like, look, we lost. We're not going to lie about it. We face, we face our losses with the same bravery that we face this battle. But some of these guys aren't so honorable like that. Uh, so yeah, just as Drogo's blood riders died fighting other Dothraki, Danny's blood riders and Jorah Mormont, uh, <laughs> those who had shortly before been allies. So you had all these guys kind of together in a group. Then Khal Drogo dies and all of a sudden they're at each other's uh, throats. Same thing here. Renly dies, and this army turns on itself. So do the Rainbow Guard. Bran, uh, in fighting them, cut some guy's hand off, but it wasn't one of the Rainbow Guard. Real quick, let's run through the Rainbow Guard. This would normally be a where are they now type situation, but it's brief enough that we I don't think it requires that. Eamon Kai is the yellow, and he uh, is killed by Loras. He's one of the two guarding the tent, and he's the one that attacks Brienne. Robar Royce is the red, and he's the one who hesitates and the reason Catelyn is able to convince him to stop and to not attack is partly because they spent some time together. Robar escorted Catelyn to uh, the Sept where she prays. So they had a little time together. They got to know each other. And the power of oaths is really shown in this moment because Robar is not sure what to do. And when Catelyn says, I swear on my husband's grave, which something in like in the real world, you swear on your husband's grave. A lot of people just don't, don't care. They're like, okay, <laughs> what does that mean? You know, like maybe that's a little stronger than I promise. But in this setting, I swear my husband's grave is a big, big statement. And on my honor as a Stark, You're right. which the Starks are known for that. And the Royces in particular, you know, who live in the Vale, who are more, you know, the first men. Mm-hmm. So obvious, I feel like he would put the most stock in it. You're right. And uh, to add to that, uh, the Starks and the Royces have a not too distant familial yeah. connection in the yeah. past. And of course, Robar Royce is the older brother to Waymar Royce, who another guy who knows a thing to a thing or two about 
signing up for long-term yeah. guard duty. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of a nice <laughs> counterpoint to each other. Or they, you know, match yeah. with each other. Just the idea of him upholding this ho- oath, you know, mm-hmm. Robar, whereas Waymar kind of didn't uphold it to a certain extent. Yeah. You know, well, he did. He died, I guess. And there's the parallels, too, of them yeah. both dying. One goes extreme north, one goes yeah. far to the south and stuff like that. Uh, so Eamon and Robar are the two killed by Loras Tyrell. So Loras, Eamon, and Robar, that's three of the seven. Brienne is the fourth. She runs away. Loras is later going to realize he's probably guilty of murder because he realizes when he's talking to Jamie that maybe uh, Eamon and Robar weren't, weren't guilty of anything. And that might be uh, a bit of reckoning for Loras later. And he also, by that same extension, he learns that Brienne is probably innocent. And that part of the human element looms enormously over all this. Sure, we've got the supernatural, we've got the armies, we've got the logistics, we've got the loyalty, we've got the kings. But Loras's love for Renly was not only an initial driving force of Renly's claim to the throne, but Loras's hate for Stannis will be so palpable and forceful that it's going to shape the rest of the alliances that form. So, yeah, the alliances and the, and the who bows to who is going to really matter, but that's driven by these personal relationships. Tyrion and Littlefinger and the rest of the small council form the basis of the Tyrell-Lannister marriage around the certainty that Loras is no way ever going to ally with Stannis. And they know that Loras is the favorite son of Mace Tyrell. So they're like, okay, this is, our, this is, this is really important. So in, a, in the longer term, Brienne is more important in terms of the relationship to Renly. But in this short term, in terms of the war, Loras's reaction is the one that drives the action. And of course... If Loras dies, which he might be dying right now on Dragonstone of his horrible wounds and burns, his death is a major impediment for the Tyrells maybe reconsidering who they're allied with. Because if Loras is dead, Mace and Olenna could, could ally with Stannis without it being too big a deal, but not as long as Loras is alive. Now, I don't really foresee that happening. I don't see much reason for Stannis and, and the Tyrells to have an alliance at any point. But... This, this hangs over the situation for several books before Stannis goes north. And let's not forget as well that this is, you know, this bonding moment for Cat and Brienne is going to come full circle uh, when they get to that scene I referred to when Catelyn thinks Brienne has betrayed her. Uh, literally the hanging, uh, the cliffhanging, cliffhanger ending that we're really all waiting to see the re- resolution of. So Cat and Brienne come, of that, come out of this. And I wonder, uh, you know, will Brienne ever speak to Loras? Right? Will they ever kind of confer on the fact that they both loved Renly and that they both hate Stannis? I kind of doubt it, but <coughs> it's possible. <coughs> Maybe more likely is that she gets to confront Stannis. Uh, I, I kind of, I'm very dubious that she'll kill Stannis like she did in the show. In fact, I would bet heavily against, it's not just dubious, but I think it's almost certainly not going to happen. But there's a chance, and there's a chance that they can interact. Because if she hears that Sansa has gone to Winterfell, you know, once she's revealed by, you know, using Littlefinger's plan, she hides as Elaine Stone, and then she reveals herself at this tournament and does all this stuff that she's Sansa. Well, that's going to be big news. It's going to be, you know, the rumors are going to spread. Bran will hear about that. And that's why she may go north to, to, to meet Sansa, and that's where she may find Stannis. So the death of Renly... Though not as personal as Ned's, it didn't hurt us as much, not nearly as much. It's just as surprising and shocking and perhaps just as surprising and shocking as the Red Wedding. It almost literally came out of nowhere. There is almost no foreshadowing for this event. There is some little clue here and there, but I don't know about you, but when I read this for the first time, I was like, holy crap, this is so out of nowhere. uh, There's no foreshadowing. When you look back, 
the only thing you can even look into it is that Renly comments, like they, they talk about attacking in the dead of night. And Renly's talking about, you know, Stannis mm. like that, you yeah. know, et cetera. We're going to be honorable. Like, it's not a surprise. And so that it's Renly... like an inversion that, oh, he he did the opposite of what they thought yeah, he would yeah. be okay with. That's a good point. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not, you might think, oh, so Stannis is going to attack at night. You wouldn't <laughs> think, oh, so Stannis is, Stannis is going to attack with the night, a shadow. <laughs> attack with the night. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, surely guessing that Renly would die at some point wasn't a surprise. Like, if you sat there and really thought about it on your first read, you're like, yeah, this Renly guy probably isn't going to end up being king, but you weren't expecting him to die like two, three paragraphs later. <laughs> and there's nothing else like this. And what, that's part of what makes it such a surprise. Yeah, we knew this was a fantasy story. We've seen that from the beginning. But none of the fantasy elements to this point have included Shadow Assassin, <laughs> right? Like that was like, what's next? Uh, you know, are we just going to see like an army of dark elves appear? You know, <laughs> like, like that would be completely random. Like it just didn't it came from nowhere. And I don't mean that in a bad way because it's, it's very clever use of George of, of uh, a writing technique by George in one fell stroke. George reminded us again, just how mortal these characters are, just how sudden these things can change. But it's also, it's a nexus where dispositions of armies and loyalties mingle with terrifying supernatural powers and a naive girl's unrequited love with equal significance to the story, right? Like normally you would think terrifying supernatural powers and these thousands of men and who they're going to fight for next are, are more important than just this, you know, Brienne loving Renly. But no, because Brienne's too important to the story. Brienne's POVs are coming, uh, you know, in Feast for Crows and, and her role alongside Catelyn is going to be pretty significant from here on out until they're separated. So arguably she's more important. Arguably this the emotional impact of this moment for her is more important than the uh for the story than you know where where the armies go from here you wonder too what brian's parallel uh, plans for her was you know like almost every character was subject to a change in their arc when george scrapped the five-year gap uh and ashea you uh did a panel a con of thrones not this last year but 2018 yeah i did on the five-year gap yeah, there was uh, one of the great theories that came from that, or maybe from before that. Uh, wasn't it Bookshelf Studs theory that Brienne w- it was Pretty Maris? Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, because uh, Pretty Maris, you know, the big, tough, badly brutalized, uh, you know, she's lost her breasts and her ears, and she's tor- messed up really badly physically, but she's still quite capable of fighting. He wonders if maybe during the five-year gap, Brienne would have gone to Essos to look for Arya and ended up, you know, in these sellsword companies. Real messed up. Yeah. Quite possible. It's a good theory, whether whether true or not. It fits really well, and I like it. I think you can listen to that five year gap panel. You can. YouTube we have it's, it's our video. It's a video on our channel. Yeah, so it's about an hour long. So there's more than this too, though. It isn't just Brienne and Loras and it, the setting up the Tyrell Lannister alliance, setting up uh, Stannis's arc. It's also more on the personal level. Like I said, the Brienne stuff isn't nearly the only personal bit that's important. Stannis's nightmares and denials and Davos is wondering all about that and his, his, his negative thoughts on what Stannis is doing there. Even though his, his support for Stannis doesn't waver, he, he recognizes Stannis's morality as a bit questionable here. And that's going to come big because all of this responsibility, duty, morality, uh, the power dynamics and taking lives is all building up to Shireen and Stannis, which is perhaps the major planned climax for Stannis's entire character arc. And I would say that begins right here in this chapter. 
Also really important, thing we'll get into more detail with later is, think we have a, a bigger picture of Stannis than a first-time reader would at this point, obviously. It's important to note just how unsympathetic Stannis is, Stannis is now. The things that we start to like about Stannis come later, like right after this, which is George going to great lengths to paint Stannis, to show Stannis as kind of evil, dirty, underhanded, but then to flip that and show actually... There's a lot of honor in this guy. He promotes people like Davos. He respects Davos's views on how he's, his lords are turncloaks. And there's a lot of things that start to balance Stannis out as a, as a character. And it's just really interesting that he places this after Stannis does this really dirty, evil thing. Even though it's arguably sort of justified, maybe not the method, but, you know, Renly was a traitor by the laws of Westeros. He's, Stannis isn't wrong about that. It's a quite a conundrum, a moral conundrum. And that's, that's, that's Stannis' arc in, in a nutshell. Moral conundrums. <laughs> George goes out of his way to slowly detail Brienne putting on Renly's armor, only for it to not matter. It's a, another poignant meaning, uh, poignant statement of protection only goes so far. He was in the midst of his army and uh, with the people who loved him most, yet there was nothing anyone could have done in that moment to stop it from happening. And of course... This is also tied indirectly to Rob, as Catelyn is thinking about Rob a lot during this chapter. And we know uh, because Stannis said Rob's turn will come too. Catelyn worries that Stannis is going to send a shadow for Rob or something like that. Of course, that's not what happens at all, but it does at least put us in mind of the danger Rob is in, which even though it resolves a different way, it's, it's true that she's in great danger or he's in great danger. Can I make a quick uh, correction to about our five-year gap thing? Yeah. Um, it wasn't Bookshelf Stud. It was Joe Magician. He, oh. was, all, he was also on the panel with me. Okay, cool. So no wonder we were confused. <laughs> I think it's the second time I've made that mistake, actually. Uh-huh. I think it's the second time I've credited to, to Michael, and it was actually Joe. Well, they're, you Sorry. know, like, you know, two peas in a pod. Yeah. They both have you great know, ideas. It's like, you know? it's like <laughs> there's Chloe and Eliana. There's Aziz and Ashea, Milk Point and Lady Gwynn. There's Joe Magician and Bookshelf Stud. <laughs> you know. They're excellent dudes. <laughs> Joe Buckley also points out that Brienne mentions that her armor was in her tent. She didn't have time to go grab it. We wonder if that'll ever turn up again at some point. Pour one out for Brienne's armor, he says. <laughs> uh, super chat from Ridiculous Ed Tollett and the amount of 420. Ashea is the best. Yes, she is. Nice uh, dollar amount there, Ridiculous Ed Tollett. <laughs> Here is a uh, great quote. Yeah, we've um, used it before, but we always like using it. Yeah, this one is is huge, and it's it's also Stefan B pointed out how well it it uh, works as a final episode synopsis for Game of Thrones season eight. <laughs> so keep that in mind as Shay is reading this. I love it. Rob will set a Rob will set aside his crown if you and your brother will do the same. She said, hoping it was true. She would make it true if she must. Rob would listen to her, even if his lords would not. Let the three of you call for a great council, such as the realm has not seen for a hundred years. We will send to Winterfell, so Bran may tell his tale, and all men may know the Lannisters for the true usurpers. Let the assembled lords of the Seven Kingdoms choose who shall rule them. Renly laughed. Tell me, my lady, do direwolves vote on who should lead the pack? No, the whole country does. Well, (laughs) not all the regions. Yeah, not all the regions. So... This is a huge setup moment. The Great Council is how we see this being resolved at the end of season eight with Bran telling his story in the show, his tale here in this wording, basically the same thing. 
And who has a better story than Bran the Broken? So that's a, it's a huge moment because the Great Council is not unlikely to be how uh, post Danny is resolved in Westeros. Um, we pr- we're pretty sure George told the showrunners to do that, and they just you know did it their way. We'll, we'll get a much more thorough, detailed version eventually, I hope. But it's this is absolutely. 100% what's being set up here, I think. We're so, going to get a whole book that's just a council meeting. <laughs> and again, I want to remind everybody that the Great Council of, as she says, 100 years ago, it's more like 70 years ago, was run by Bloodrith. Oh, yeah. And it was after the death of Makar, who is a very strong parallel to Stannis. And uh, Makar, uh, Makar's hand was Bloodrith. Yeah. So the, the, the other Rainbow Knights I didn't mention, there's... Uh, Guyard the Green, who is killed in the Battle of the Blackwater. Bryce the Orange, who is killed in the Battle of the Blackwater. And finally, Parmen the Purple. He is the last one that we did not mention. Stannis sends Parmen the Purple to go claim Renly's uh, large infantry at Bitterbridge. And it doesn't happen. Parmen the Purple is imprisoned by Loras Tyrell. Last we hear, he is still a prisoner at Highgarden. I think that's unlikely that he is still a prisoner at Highgarden, but we do not know uh, if he is truly been set free we believe his father has already bent the knee to the tyrells um and joffrey or to the lannister throne and so uh parman is just kind of out there somewhere he'll probably pop back up eventually but we don't actually know for sure uh cannibalism slash catapult anecdote foreshadowing here (laughs) what what are you talking about aziz well let's read a quote As the long fingers of dawn fanned across the fields, color was returning to the world. Where gray men had sat, gray horses armed with shadow spears, the points of 10,000 lances now glinted silvery cold. And on the myriad flapping banners, Catelyn saw the blush of red and pink and orange, the richness of blues and browns, the blaze of gold and yellow, all the power of Storm's End and Highgarden, the power that had been Renly's an hour ago. They belong to Stannis now, she realized, even if they do not know it themselves yet. Where else are they to turn if not to the last Baratheon? Stannis has won all with a single evil stroke. So that is, uh, <clears throat> that's pretty big because the, the, it, it refers to many different examples we've seen before of how George likes to describe armies in the dark or in in pale light using the gray and white and black metaphors and uh this is of course we're going to see much later when stannis is uh up in the north and we talk we already talked about sacrifice now the reason this cannibalism catapult anecdote comes up is we hear uh talk about how crescent stopped stannis from flinging uh some of the traitor knights by catapult because they might need to be eaten. Now, you wonder if Crescent was just like using sideways logic there to be like, maybe we shouldn't be flinging bodies and he's going to give Stannis a, a different reason not to do it. But it's all leading up to Stannis facing down the quote-unquote the gods, the cold gods, perhaps in a, in a siege of Winterfell um, that foreshadows or mir- is mirrored by his time at Storm's End when he was nearly starved uh, during the rebellion. So there is a lot at work there with the groundwork for all that coming up. And it strikes me too, just how amazing, I think this chapter, maybe out of all of them to this point, including Game of Thrones, has the best prose. The way he describes 
these armies, the way he describes the light coming into these uh, in the morning. And for example, here's one that we picked out that I think is particularly noteworthy prose. Comes they, before this quote we've just read, uh, when things are still dark. They rode in silence through sparse woodland where the trees leaned drunkenly away from the sea. The nervous whinny of horses and the clank of steel guided them back to Renly's camp. The long ranks of man and horse were armored in darkness, as black as if the smith had hammered night itself into steel. There were banners to her right, banners to her left, and rank on rank of banners before her, but in the pre-dawn gloom, neither colors nor sigils could be discerned. A gray army, Catelyn thought. Gray men on gray horses beneath gray banners. Yeah, every, it's all gray because it's, it's hard to tell who the good guys and the bad guys are. It's hard to tell. And it's, it's not good that they're fighting each other rather than, you know, things that Osha has said, like, oh, the real enemy is to the north. That's who you should be saving your strength for. And um, phrases like armored in darkness, as black as if the smith had hammered night itself into steel. I mean, this is going to be a regular thing if we're faced with a real long night when there is no sunlight. There is no, uh, there isn't going to be pre-dawn gloom. There's going to be just gloom. There is no pre-dawn anymore. So uh, whenever we see a language like this, it makes me think of things that are coming in the story that we don't have direct details for because they haven't happened yet. But we can be extremely confident that in some form or fashion, they are coming. Speaking of colors, Nina points out that, uh, and a few others, I guess, it was a couple of people made note of the fact that Renly was dressed in Tyrell colors when he died. And that just uh, goes to show a little bit where the power in his army really lied. Like the Tyrells were by far the most important part of his army. Um, <clears throat> And they're not joining Stannis is cited as a major factor by not only Courtney Penrose, but lots of other lords who uh, off screen are deciding which side to take. Super chat from Maura Lee. Love your channel and the fabulous content. And yes, the kitties, of course, the kitties. They haven't made an appearance today. Well, the door is closed. That's true. You never know. There's one cat in the room. (laughs) Thank you very much, Maura. Tree Girl says, uh, the stranger sounds like an other, the way Catelyn is uh, interpreting. I have to agree. It yeah. says, shadow with stars for eyes. Oh, Makes Cat uneasy. Same thing, yeah. Yeah. Makes me uneasy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also, related to that same moment when Cat is l- looking at the different gods in, in the mini- miniature sept there, st- she notes, uh, Stefan B points out that Catelyn thinks of Jon Snow and even Arya when looking at the warrior, which is interesting that Cat sees Arya as a warrior because we talked about. The How Catelyn wasn't really yeah. part of Arya getting trained. Yeah, because uh, that she's happened aware in, King's Land, in King's Landing. Yeah. Um, and obviously she was horrified at Brienne being a warrior and all yeah. that. So, But Catelyn can't help but see that Arya has that uh, yeah. interest. <laughs> and um, also there's some people wondering about the connection of Jockin's mention of the fire god and whether we should be connecting that to Melisandre and the, the idea that if R'hllor is real and, and jealous, like if he has a personality or she has a personality, then that would, uh, in retrospect, make Jockin act correct that mm, we need to give these deaths to the Red God or someone's going to pay for it. Someone out in the world is going gonna, is gonna to pay for it. You know, it's interesting um, that the idea that was brought up earlier that um, he had to give three more deaths, right? Because they took it through burning. Yeah. 
He doesn't burn. It's not like he burns the other three people. Uh, sure, they're just deaths. They're, they're just not deaths. Like God, yeah. So um, I think so it, that's a flaw with that potentially, but it could still count for it. Anyways, well, maybe, I just, it's not, maybe it's not a flaw. It might be uh, uh, speaking to the idea that Jockin was telling stories to just win Arya over in the first place. Because we do, we we certainly like. Why is he responsible for Rorge and Biter? You know, mm-hmm. for example. Well, yeah, we, we gave some possibility for why that is. Yeah, yeah no, I think you're that's right. That's true. Uh, that is true. That he could just be, you know, here. Look, look how powerful we are. Yeah, <laughs> right. I don't think that he's they're, they're that cavalier though, as it happens, the faceless men. So probably not. Probably not. Like that was a joke that I was making, but yeah, I, I guess if you're right that they were trying to win her over to some extent, and we'll be seeing. I, I'm not sure about myself. Yeah, like, I'm not I, I think he maybe could sense her abilities, and you'd think that her abilities might be useful but maybe they're specifically not her skin changing warging i mean yeah i'm really looking forward to going deeper into the aria faceless man hole as we go farther into this arc i have things that are important to say that are not their best saved till some other time (laughs) but i was something we've been keying in on that i hadn't keyed in on before this reread is the the parallels to aria and varus and just thinking about varia varia how varus is you know, joined a mummer's troop when he was really a kid. And that's where mm. Arya is right now mm. <laughs> in a mummer's troop, you know, and uh, how she's, you know, they're both masters of the skies and, and how, uh, you know, the, all that time in the tunnels. And I don't know, I'm building up. To, I'm really gaining on my adding points to the theory that I think Arya might be the one to kill Varys. Oh. That would be very different from the show with the betrayal of Daenerys and being Are killed by sure Dragonfire. Are you sure you don't think that Arya is Varys's daughter? <laughs> yeah i'm sure okay <laughs> he was almost certainly cut more than eight more than 10 years ago. <laughs> okay that's the only reason though that he may have sure that's the only it. reason though that's the only reason yeah you know he could have frozen his sperm right <laughs> <laughs> yeah that technology exists that technology <laughs> that covers it for today everybody we are done for now thank you to everyone who came thank you to all of the live viewers Thank you to everyone who has liked and shared and donated and supported us on Patreon. Thank you to Joe Buckley for the the assistance. Thank you to uh, Nina and the History of Westeros mods for all the great thoughts and organization behind the discussions that help drive our episodes. Thanks, everybody, on Flick. Uh, Of course, Ashea wearing many hats yet again, doing an amazing job. And she will help me read the next batch of chapters Next week, at the usual time, we've got a month straight of uh, 3 p.m. Sunday starts, so no changes to the schedule until November for, or December 1st. That week, we will not have an episode at all. Uh, we'll be off for, um, that's the weekend ending in December 1st. So the week of Thanksgiving, basically, no episode. We'll have some sort of other episode, but it won't be Valerie Reeves. So, coming up next week... John 4, the one with the wild ghost chase, a.k.a. the gang stashed a dragon glass cache. Brand 5, the gang dreams about the shores of Winterfell, a.k.a. the one where Sir Roderick should have killed Reef. Tyrion 8, the gang wants Renly's leavings, a.k.a. the purple wedding pre-planning party. Theon 3, the gang hunts wild hares, a.k.a. the one with Theon's big plan. I thought that said big pan for a second. <laughs> it's like, what, is he making some eggs? <laughs> Arya 8, the lion gang leaves Harrenhal, a.k.a. the one with basilisk blood. Catelyn 5, the gang returns to Riveron, a.k.a. the one with Edmure's big plan or big pan. Yes, big pans and big plans aplenty <laughs> coming to you next week. 
Uh, I forgot to mention that during Catlin 3, we reached the actual halfway point. I did mention it last week that we would be reaching the halfway point, but we did reach the halfway point of the book, even though we're not past the halfway point in terms of chapter numbers. That's because the earlier half of the book has longer chapters than the latter. Well, we'll see what the rest of the Clash of Kings has to offer us starting next Saturday, Sunday, and continuing till the rest of the year when we will be finishing Clash of Kings if the schedule holds right before the calendar turns 2020, at which point we will, of course, be going headfirst into a storm of swords. So make sure you're ready. Make sure you're well read and make sure you're uh, bring the bring your jokes because, you know, we want to have some humor next week. For, for no apparent reason, then I'm saying that right now. Ah. Until next week, everybody. Thanks again. Valar Reredus.